Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 69 nice. of WCW, the sexy episode of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the twisted genius Dean Ayers, and I am joined as ever by my esteemed co-host, sports columnist, and editor of HooksOnWrestling.co.uk, Liam Hap. Good evening to you, Liam. So, uh, which episode did you say this was again? This is the sexy one. It's 69. Nice. Yeah. So, did you say 68? This is 68. No, no, that was the last one. So, this is... 69. Nice. Okay, yeah. I'll stop. Sorry. Yeah, I'm good, Dean. Thank you for asking. Uh, how are you doing on this uh, unpredictably weathered Friday evening? Uh, I'm I'm good. I've I've had uh, I've had the whole of this week off work, and I got next week off as well. So I've had the dullest summer holiday ever because I, I'm stuck to just having days out here and there and stuff. Uh, and and I uh, I joined a snooker club yesterday, so it does now mean I can walk around town with a mask on whilst carrying a snooker cue. Oh great! So that means you're you're just enabling Ronnie O'Sullivan, aren't you? Because they yeah. look at these things, they look at the amount of snooker club memberships that go up, and they think, right, this temperamental so and so, he's he's actually driving up business. You're just going to encourage him. We're going to have another five years of him dropping yeah. out at random tournaments and swanning back in. Cheers, Dean. Yeah, we we did also work out that you could probably hide a shotgun in a snooker queue case, and no one would know any different. And how, how did you test this out? I'm, I'm curious. Um, well, I, I couldn't possibly say because obviously um, the police um, might be listening to this and the trail of destruction around my hometown will be uh, far too easy to come knocking at my door. Yeah, let's be honest. I really don't think any of them have that much time on their hands that they'd listen to us. Although having said that, the way I was playing snooker the other day, if I did try and shoot anyone, I'd fucking miss by a mile. So it's nothing <laughs> to worry about. So um, we are joined by a guest, another guest. A guest. We have a new guest as well. Oh. We're not re- we're not recycling some old shit. No, we've got a we've got a brand new guest on. It is one of our hooked on wrestling family members. Uh, he is he is a man uh, who has been a stalwart of the Hooked on Wrestling brand since it, it began, really. And also, like me, has hosted Evenings with Bret Hart. And I'd like to say welcome to Because WCW to Rob McNichol. Good evening, Rob. Good evening, gentlemen. Have I ever told you about the time I managed Terry Funk? Oh, no, so that's not me, is it? <laughs> that's one that you've got over me there, Dean, is that? But no, no, thank you, boys. It's very, very nice to be on this episode, not just any episode, as you say, but episode number sixty-nine. The nice. great thing is about great thing is about WCW is it's the same either way up, isn't it? <laughs> Very true. Yes, um, and, and obviously, yeah, you, you did you did ask why it's taken us so long to get you on this show, but it was because we we're waiting for episode number sixty-nine. Nice. Well, um, bless your heart for that. I mean, it's nice <laughs> to know that you you think of me in that way. When you think of that number, you think of me. 
actually, <laughs> actually, like I've got to say, there's actually a legit reason why it's taken Rob so long to get on. Uh, there, there, there was a period, so it's only recently that Rob and I have had several ways of reaching out to each other, like exchanging social media hands and all that. So before that was a thing, um, I showed an interest in, get, in getting Rob on, as you did, Dean. So I did the logical thing without a direct means. I reached out to his fellow Hooked On original, the Hooked On founder, Paul Benson, who has been on several times. And on two occasions, I said to Paul, it'd be great if we could get Rob on. Could you please set something up? And both times he came back on and he said, I spoke to Rob and he doesn't want to do it, but I'll do it. And that's how we got Paul Benson part two and three. And I'm guessing that he never actually reached out and you never actually said that, Rob. I, th- I think that might have been a bit of a scheme by Paul to get his hat trick. Quite get frankly, the, ball. the man is an absolute piece of work. And when you, when, you dr- <laughs> when you drill down into it, if you look at all of the wrestling promoters uh, through the past, uh, what have they all got in common? What has Dusty Rhodes got in common with Fritz Von Erich, got in common with Bill Watts? What do they all do? They push themselves, folks. So if you go to Paul and say you want someone from the Hooked On brand, he's going to do it himself. He's on the Hooked On podcast, How To Be Great With Me. Hooked On Wrestling launches a new podcast, How Mania, with Ash Rose, who is great from the gorilla position. I love Ash. Great lad. WWE kids um, editor, all that kind of thing. What does it say on it? by Paul Benson and Ash Rose. He's still got himself into that one as well. So quite frankly, he's a megalomaniac. He's an appalling individual, um, but he's my best friend. So it's a very weird world, isn't it? He's like so, Herb Abrams without the Coke, isn't he? <laughs> Do you mean he... Hang on a minute. That means that Paul Benson's life is full of hookers. I think you better reconsider what you're saying there. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry. Herb Abrams without the Coke or hookers. He's like Blackjack. So... um. So, Rob, for our, our listeners, uh, especially those in, in America who may not be familiar with uh, with you and what you do, um, both in and out of wrestling, tell us a little bit about yourself by way of introduction. Okay, well, uh, within wrestling, uh, I started off, let me see, what was it, about 12 or 13 years ago, um, I got involved in writing for uh, the Suns Wrestling section online, which at the time was basically... It was on the website, but it was just a one-off, one page per week, as if you would see a, a, a column in a newspaper. Mm. But that, over time, um, grew to be a bit more and be, to be a more uh, established website along the lines that you would see today. So I began sort of writing the sidebar of that section once a month or so, then once every couple of weeks, then sometimes wrote the main story. And as time went on, I was doing more and more. The, the editor of that site was a guy called Simon Rothstein, who's a... Uh, everyone knows in, in British wrestling media terms, now works for uh, for Impact Wrestling, has done for many years. Um, and so I basically took me on as his, uh, his number two, doing stuff for The Sun. I was always freelance, but uh, I did a lot of stuff there. And when Simon moved on to work for TNA, Impact as it is now, um, I took over to the editorship of, uh, of The Sun's wrestling side of things. Did that for many years and was happy to uh, get involved with things like WrestleCast, along with Joel Ross, which was... Uh, doing wrestling podcasts long before they were wrestling podcasts, I have to say. Um, and then from there, I had a couple of years writing for The Mirror. I got taken over to um, The Daily Mirror by uh, Rob Lee, who's like someone else that would be familiar with British wrestling media guys. Um, and during all of that, we started up Hooked on Wrestling, which started off as a um, as an online magazine, which was co-edited by myself and uh, Patrick Lennon from The Star. And over time, it developed into a a live brand. So Hooked on Wrestling has been providing live pay-per-view parties uh, for I think about seven or eight years now. We started off on about three weeks notice and got about 90 people in Belushi's and Shepherd's Bush. And now before the coronavirus struck, um, this year's WrestleMania, we were, you know, 
we were online to get something around about four or five thousand people at about 13 or 14 different venues around the country um you know it's grown into something we just talked about paul benson and joking aside it's his uh it's his brainchild really all the way along the magazine was his idea the the pay-per-view stuff has been his idea although i did name hooked on wrestling i will say that it's my name but it's uh it's his man hours and his uh his blood set blood sweat and tears so um that's my wrestling side of things i've done a few other bits and bobs as well as, as dean says uh, i used to uh, host for psi events and we brought over brett hart sean michaels jim ross chris jericho uh, and put on the london wrestling convention of 2015 i think it was and I also used to write for Fighting Spirit magazine and a few other little bits um, here and there. I would have popped up on. I used to do Slam on Sports Tonight Live and um, just all sorts of different things. I'm not quite as involved as I used to be um, when I was doing the Sun stuff. And I was much more regular watching the show, reporting and everything. These days, I'm a little bit more in the background. But on hookedonwrestling.co.uk, we do have a, a podcast, which uh, I host with Paul. And we do the, the Sunday quiz as well. So I'm sort of a, a bit of a minister without portfolio as far as how goes these days. So that, that podcast for people who want to find it is How to Be Great. In fact, you had me on a couple of weeks ago talking about commentators and good fun it was too. Um, and, and of course, if, if people are, are listening to this within the first couple of days of it going up, this coming Sunday, there is a huge amount of stuff going on with Hooked on Wrestling around SummerSlam weekend and looking back over SummerSlam 92 as well. Yeah, that's right. I'm not sure when uh, what your schedule is, boys, but if this goes up before SummerSlam, uh, then it should be said, yes, at SummerSlam evening from 8 p.m. Uh, UK time. So that would be 3 p.m. Uh, Eastern time in America. Uh, we are going live on our Facebook Live and our YouTube Live channels um, with a live broadcast for around about eight hours or so, uh, building up to SummerSlam itself uh, and keeping everyone company during the paper. We're not screening it, obviously we're not allowed to do that, but what it will be if you join us on facebook and youtube from 8 p.m uh we have all sorts of things going on you're joining us dean you're going to be interviewing uh b brian blair who is the cauliflower yes. alley uh, president we'll come more on that in a second uh we've also got martin goldsmith who was the um co-promoter of SummerSlam 92 at wembley stadium he's still involved in wrestling merchandising these days but we're going to find out some backstage stories from SummerSlam 92 from martin uh, and we've also got this is kind of the highlight of the night really but we've got diana hart smith uh, and we've got um, Harry um, and Georgia, the Davy Boys, uh, two son, uh, his son and daughter, who are going to be. Diana's going to do, be doing a Q and A session with us, and Harry and Georgia are going to be doing a live watch along of Brett versus Bulldog from uh, SummerSlam '92, one of the most iconic matches ever taken place in this country, one of the greatest wrestling matches of all time. Um, we're very privileged to have uh, members of the family who are going to talk us through the whole thing. One or two other little surprises uh, hopefully will be popping up all night as well. So that's between 8 and 12 on SummerSlam evening, British time. And then from SummerSlam uh, bell time onwards, we'll be sort of keeping our uh, keeping our mics on and our um, cams live and just having a little chat as a bit of an alternate commentary, but just just having some fun with it. So everyone's welcome to join us. It's on uh, facebook.com forward slash hooked on wrestling. And I believe youtube.com forward slash hooked on wrestling as well for the channels. And the big thing is that uh, we're trying to raise as much money as possible for uh, the Cauliflower Alley Club. Hopefully most people listening to this will be familiar with them, do a fantastic uh, amount of work for ex-wrestlers. Um, in essence, from British uh, ears, if you're familiar with football, they're a bit like the PFA um, in football terms, sort of looking after ex-pros and that kind of thing. Uh, so, or the Injured Jockeys Fund, if you're a horse racing fan, they're that sort yeah. of organisation. Uh, a brilliant set of um, people. Uh, we're trying to raise a bit of money and a bit of awareness for uh, for them on, on the night itself. Hence why yeah. uh, Mr. Blair is joining us. Well, absolutely. I was going to say one thing. I will be uh, I'll be talking to to uh, Mr. Blair about will be um, you know exactly what they do to to 
to raise people's awareness because I think most people in this country are aware of the, the the club's existence and they know that they have like an annual reunion and, and that's about where it ends so that's you know we're going to try and um, open some eyes up listen up slap nuts that's right this is jeff jarrett the chosen one and you're listening to because wcw now choke on that so um moving on to the pay-per-view rob what yes. pay-per-view have you chosen to review and why well, the brilliant thing is, is that, um, you know, in talking about this, because uh, you guys have been doing this for so long now, 68 episodes, I believe it's been mentioned already. Yeah. Uh, and, and I know you've this covered... is the um, 69. The, 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 the next one. Nice. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the one before 70. But it's mm. um, obviously you've covered lots of nitros and lots of pay-per-views and stuff. And you just kind of in your mind think, well, you know, they, they'll have done a lot of the big ones. So I said... I. This is for to the listener. I was talking to Liam and Dean, sort of, you know, when we were sorting out this, uh, organising this podcast, and I said, well, I'd, I'd like to do one from around about 95, 96, 97. That's where I'm more familiar with WCW, um, 96 onwards, really. Um, but you'll have done the big ones like Bash at the Beach 96. And before I could get any further, the lads went, well, actually, I don't think we have. And so indeed. And do you yeah, know what? That really, really surprised me because I was I was absolutely convinced that we must have done this because, I mean, the, the very first episode we did was was Starcade 97. And the reason that we chose that was because it was the biggest show they ever did. And also it was where the, the first chinks in the armor and the, the downslide started. Yeah. And we did, I think after that, we did bash at the beach 98, which was we, the Rodman yeah. and um, Carl Malone match. And I think after that, we started getting on guests and we're there for asking them what they wanted. And so it wasn't our choice. It was the guest choice. And yeah, somehow this, this one had slipped through the net. Hadn't they, it, they, they tended to have a bit more of a preference. We, We've, we've discussed on previous episodes, so some viewers will remember that the popular thing with a lot of the the, the, the you know the, the former wrestlers, British wrestlers, British wrestling media that we have on is like us. They all remember the early 90s on ITV, WCW Worldwide. So I think we're honestly we're running out of 91, 92, 93s. There's not a lot left yeah. because there are less pay per views then as well. So they're at a premium, and we've had some good 96 ones. We did Halloween Havoc 96. We've done Bash at the Beach 97. We had some good ones from this era, but nowhere near as many. And there are more pay-per-views. And somehow this one slipped through the cracks. And you're right, Rob. It's it's seminal. Absolutely so. I'm sure we'll go into detail over this, just how big a pay-per-view this is. Because I, I've watched it a million times. And I thought, so if you know what? Just to be absolutely fresh, I'm going to rewatch it anyway. And I'm glad I did. Yes. Because every time, it just, it just has me every time. And not a lot of pay-per-views can do that. Yeah, there's so much to talk about on the actual show itself, which clearly we're going to get into. Um, there's a couple of reasons for me choosing it, not just because it's iconic status there with the whole third man thing, um, but two other things, really. One is that, um, well, I'll leave you guys to, to set up the plugs in a little bit, but uh, we've done a lot at the top of the show, but uh, we're going to be doing a, a Nitro week on, on hookedtimewrestling.co.uk, and I know this is a pay-per-view and not a Nitro, but this is very much in the... Uh, the real heart of the, the Nitro. Nitro has been going just over a year by this point, and it's really uh, starting to pick up a bit of steam. So that's one thing I wanted to make one do one in the Nitro era. But secondly, my own um, uh, journey, if you like, with WCW is that uh, I first started becoming a wrestling fan in, in around about late 1991, early 1992. But I was exclusively a WWF guy. Um, I never watched Worldwide on ITV. I never saw, saw a WCW at all. Uh, for years and years and years. So I was WW. I remember um, 
And there were a lot of my friends at school um, would talk about wrestling and had wrestling. My, my first introduction to wrestling was WWF Top Trumps. So I could tell you, I could tell you that Hulk Hogan was a three-time champion and that The Undertaker was six foot ten or whatever it was by the virtue of what what I had on my card as opposed to uh, um, what I'd seen on the screen. But the first show I ever saw was SummerSlam 1991. I was given a VHS of that late in 1991 uh, by a friend. And then the more uh, time went on, I was watching you know stuff on. Uh, on my mates if I was around their place or I was they were giving me VHSs and then my family got Sky in early 1992 in the build-up basically to WrestleMania 8 so I became a big WWF fan around that era um, but never really you know paid any attention whatsoever to WCW barely even knew it existed um, until I think it was around about early 1995 maybe 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 Christmas 94 um, someone gave me uh, well you know maybe we used to get annuals when you were a kid like Royal the Rovers or the Dandy yeah. or whatever um and I got given a WCW annual. Basically, a, a family friend knew I was into wrestling and bought me a wrestling annual, but didn't realize it was the wrong company. Um, but I flicked through this, and there was plenty of people that I was familiar with. Hulk Hogan was there by then, and I couldn't work out why the Legion of Doom were called the Road Warriors and uh, you know, a few other people, why Earthquake was now called Avalanche and, and various other things. But you know, there were people I was familiar with, people I wasn't, but obviously I was aware of this, this other company. And then in 1996, and I know it was in around about April, May 1996, I'm fairly sure, um, I discovered that uh, if you watch Cartoon Network on a Friday, once it ran out at about six o'clock on Cartoon Network, it turned into TNT. And the first thing on TNT was WCW Nitro. On a Friday um, night, yeah. On a Friday night. So we used to have the Friday night. Well, not quite the wars, but here in England, you could watch... Uh, Nitro about six o'clock on TNT and watch Raw about eight o'clock on Sky Sports. The Monday shows were repeat, well not repeated, but shown for the first time here uh, on a Friday night at that point. Um, the very first week I watched, I recognised a few people on Nitro. IRS was now called VK Wall Street, and that Ric Flair guy was there, and Macho Man Randy Savage was around, and a few other people that I, I didn't know, such as Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero and, and whatever. Um, and then literally the third week. The third WCW show I ever saw, Scott Hall came out of the crowd. So I had been watching Nitro for two weeks when yeah. the landscape completely changed. So the whole storyline into the show that we're about to do um, is basically my introduction to WCW. I don't know of a WCW without the NWO until I went back and watched things previous to that via the network. I've subsequently been back and watched all the WCW pay-per-views, all the Nitros, and I'm actually watching them in, in order, and I've got to sort of around about spring 1997, having watched them back round again. So th this this kind of period of time is quite uh, interesting to me as a 12-year-old as a watching for the first time, and now once again at 36, watching them back round again. Yeah, because I mean, we we are doing the, the Nitro watchlongs, and it was a couple of episodes ago, or sorry, it's the last the last Nitro we did, um, which would have been late March '96. Um, that both of us said we vaguely remember this being on TV at the time. So, so I think it must have been around the yeah, Feb, February March '96 that they started airing on British TV. Yeah, I don't know when it started, but I know I, I found it. Yeah, um, what, must, what must have been early May because um, I'm fairly certain Scott Hall turned up in the middle of May. So yes, he um, did. Yeah. I, I might have those dates a bit wrong, but 
and I might have been a week. I might have watched it four yeah. or five weeks uh, rather than two. You know, your memory plays tricks I 24 years on, but you, yes. you see what I'm getting at. But yeah, and um, yeah, because Scott Hall turns up, you know, in the middle of Maine, it's the first two hour episode of Nitro that he, he arrives at. But anyway, let's yeah. uh, let's run, kick off with, uh, with what happens here. So this is Bash at the Beach 1996. We start off with some terrible generic music for the intro while clips of, as they're calling it, the hostile takeover are shown with the arrival in WCW of Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. It is July the 7th, 1996. We're coming live from the Ocean Center in Daytona Beach, Florida. And Tony, well, you know, we, we often talk, Liam, about how Tony Giovanni, the master of hyperbole, likes to uh, exaggerate the importance of matches. But I guess in, in hindsight, his uh, boast of never before in the history of this great sport has there been a night like this one holds up pretty true in the end. Yeah, it's very similar to the end of The Boy Who Cried Wolf. You only realise when the wolf is devouring you that he's actually right on this one occasion. But yeah, we, <laughs> yes. by, by the time we get to the end of this free hour pay for you, yeah, on rewatches it really hammers home. And Joel, what really does get you on the commentary is there's a few bits here and later on when the panel three uh, discuss things about the hostile takeover match with each other, is that Bobby the Brain Heenan, agrees with them on things yes. and makes points that they in turn agree with. So you know we're in for a weird night. Indeed we are. Yes, we'll come to that later. So um, he is, as you say, he's joined by Bobby Heenan and Dusty Rhodes on commentary. Everyone wants to know who the third man is for the six-man tag team main event. Nobody has seen Eric Bischoff either, who was assaulted by the outsiders at the Great American Bash last month where he got powerbombed off the stage. Um, it's speculated that he might have been taken hostage. Um, but then we go straight to the in-ring action, which is a, a refreshing change for WCW, who have been known to have an endless preamble before. So our opening match is Psychosis against Rey Mysterio Jr. And we're joined on commentary by Mike Tanay. Um, Mysterio looks half the size he does these days. These two are, of course, very familiar foes, having wowed a cold audience in ECW prior to arriving in WCW. Um, Tanay summarizes the career-long rivalry between these two, whilst Heenan comments that Psychosis has hair like Peggy Bundy from Married with Children. Um, they worked the previous night in Mexico, apparently, and just made it to the show in time. Although I can't actually find any record of a show happening the night before. But um, if it did happen, then good old WCW logistics there. So um, Psychosis opens up the high-risk moves with a tope that nearly takes his own head off as he crashes into the guardrail on the outside. He later lands a spectacular-looking top-rope leg drop for a two-count. Five minutes in, it's all Psychosis, as Mysterio's barely got any offense in so far. Um, the tide turns when Mysterio is on the apron and uses his legs to catapult Psychosis into the ring post. He follows this up with his trademark Hurricane Rana, which the commentators call a Frankenstein, the American known name for the move. But Tene introduces it as a Hurricane Rana, of course, which is a name that has now entered the American wrestling vernacular. So uh, a further Hurricane Rana attempt is countered as Psychosis flings Mysterio over his head, landing throat first across the top rope for a spectacular bump. Psychosis then lands a senton splash from the top rope to the floor. Mysterio is back on the defensive again. He gets back on the front foot though with a hurricane run out of nowhere, followed by one from the apron to the floor. Here, um, 
The crowd are popping big for each one, even though his offence does seem to consist entirely of Hurricane Runners right now. Misiro lands a springboard dropkick to the back of Psychosis's head. Psychosis then scoots face first under the bottom rope, crashing face first onto the floor in a great looking bump. Um, Mysterio then half lands a corkscrew acai moonsault, crashing into the guardrail. Back in the ring, Psychosis counters another Hurricane Runner attempt with a sit out powerbomb. And the end comes moments later when Psychosis attempts a top rope splash mountain or razor's edge, which Mysterio counters with, you've guessed it, another Hurricane Runner for the pinfall in 15 minutes and 18 seconds to a big pop from the crowd. Rob, what are your thoughts on this opener? Uh, it's an absolute cracker. Um, it really is. And I think it's worth trying to put in context that you mentioned that these guys have worked a lot in Mexico. You, you mentioned that they'd worked in, in ECW. But you have to think that the average WCW fan, or the average North American wrestling fan, you know, WWF or WCW, won't have seen very much like this at all at this Absolutely, point. Absolutely, you know, yes. You've seen a match or two. These days, we've seen 25 years worth of... Um, whether it's lucha matches or whether it's ROH, you know, style matches or um, ladder encounters or whatever, with, you know, with spot after spot. Um, but this doesn't feel like it's just a, a stunt um, show. It is a little bit Mexican style rather than American style, as you would expect. But it's really entertaining. It's quite logical. Um, it's the smaller Mysterio trying to work his way around the bigger psychosis. And these guys did have this match off pat. You know, they probably did have you know, a thousand matches. So yes. um, it was fairly easy for them to work together, but it's clearly uh, a vehicle for Mysterio as the most of the division was at this point, for, you know, for a long, long time, the cruiserweight division was essentially, how do we get Dean Malenko and Ray Mysterio to look as good as possible? And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Um, that makes complete sense. Um, I loved it. I absolutely loved it entirely, but uh, I didn't love the commentary. Um, and you've already brought up the uh, the commentary team. I know we're going to get on to things that happen during the main event, and we'll, we'll do that during the main event, I'm sure. Um, but first of all, I think four people in a commentary booth is too many. Um, and secondly, I really did. This is about the... Listen, everybody loves Bobby Heenan. I'm sure they do. And we all know what great calls he made over the years. And even on, on this night, I think he's mostly great. Um, but I didn't like the idea that he basically took the fun out of Mike Tanay for knowing stuff. And I know Bobby's a heel, but, um, you know, Tony Schiavone doesn't actually help him out. There was one point, I've written this down, that Bobby Heenan, as a heel, says to Tanay, where, where do you get all these names from? You were talking about him saying something about the, the Hurricane Rana. Yeah. So he said, where do you get all these names from? And Tanay doesn't have a chance to answer because Tony Schiavone interrupts and goes, if you don't know, Brain, we just make them up. <laughs> and I thought, yes. no, he's not making them up. He knows. He's done his research. I remember once um, uh, watching. Sorry to have a bit of a sidetrack, but those of you that listen to my podcast know that we quite often go on to football for a little analogy. And I remember once watching a game. It was an FA Cup game on the BBC, and the commentators were John Motson and Mark Lawrenson. And Motti did one of his trademark, um, you know, well, that's the uh, the fifteenth time in the last twenty years that we've seen a game like that. He did, you know, he gave the big stat, yeah. and uh, Mark Lawrenson went, huh. You can see what you were doing last night. And I thought, yes, Loro, his job. <laughs> That's his job. Yes. If you showed a bit more professionalism, mate, then people might like you. And it's like, I really, really was irritated by Bobby Heenan during this match. Like I say, I know you're supposed to be, but it was the wrong kind of me getting annoyed. You know, yes. it wasn't his normal entertaining heel self. And I will pick up, I love the fact that you picked up on Tony Schiavone saying, uh, 
he actually said the phrase this great sport in the first sentence of the show you know it's such a cliche that he says it but he does say it all the time and it's the very very first um line of the show that he said it on and i will just say before we move on to to the next match sorry to take it right back to the start but uh you mentioned about the opening music sounding very generic with the opening montage and so forth Mm -hmm. i'm fairly certain it's well i don't know about certain about it being it but it sounds to me like um crazy by seal (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't know when that was. That was the early '90s. That was before this pay-per-view, right? Yeah, that's yeah, true. It uh, is. Yeah, you're it, right. oh, it actually is. It is. It is. To the, really? to the point where, if I was to dig it up on YouTube, um, the the name of the production ripoff song, because WCW do this all the time with the uh, production ripoffs. If I yeah. go to, uh, bear with me one second. Lord, well, it's probably is... actually owned by. Right. It decided, Time Warner Music or something. Maybe, but the, the artist is D. Todd Sorensen, and he had the audacity, the cheek, the nerve, to call it crazed. <laughs> Not crazy, because that would be a rip-off. That would be wrong. Yeah. Crazed is a completely crazed. different tune. But I'm going to have yeah. to go back and listen to this. That is news to me. But yeah, wow. it, is, it is clearly a rip-off of that, and it is a pretty guff generic pay-per-view theme but i'm gonna save my best stuff on this for later during the main event okay because yeah, for me it, it takes come back a turn. Later. it yeah, takes an no. amazing turn and i'll explain exactly why later okay um but but what going back to what you were saying about with the commentators rob this yeah. this is not by any stretch of the imagination the first time this has happened we have re- we have done other pay-per-views with with matches involving Mysterio and Ultimo Dragon, um, where where Tanay, I remember there was one show where Tanay correctly calls the Dragon Screw Leg Whip, and the other commentators literally fall about laughing at the, the ridiculous name that they think he's made up, and it's like, uh-huh, oh no, that's, that's the name of it. Yeah, but, no, it drives me crackers that sort of yeah. thing. It's a real sort of I'm lazy and we'll get through the yeah, get through the day doing my job, and when someone else does it properly they just get called a nerd well don't forget he's the strange thing with ultimo dragon is everyone in the entire world has always said ultimo dragon but if you go back to when he first appeared in wcw they called him the ultimate dragon yes they did and then everyone just called him ultimo anyway it was everyone just ignored it yeah oh man anyway um liam what do you think of this one oh the opener and all that yeah, <laughs> the over- well, as, as far as the art of the opening goes, you, you guys got it spot on. This is brilliant to watch. And to be brutally honest, if I felt that way inclined, I could take a magnifying glass to this and find that the, because there are some little, you know, get your shit in moments, which, you know, causes a lot of debate on social media about whether or not like a, a match that is overly spotty is, is a good thing or not. There's definitely a bit of that. There's a bit of uh, where the rhyme and the reason drifts off a little bit. But you know what? Rob's right. In the context of this, with the cruiserweight division being established, with Rey Mysterio being put front and centre uh, within the division... With this crowd, you can do that. You can afford. You can afford to be a bit whimsical with it. It reminds me very much of my my favourite WCW pay-per-view of all time is Spring Stampede '99. I've mentioned that a few times on here. One day we'll cover that bloody thing. And there's a famous opener there between Hooventut Guerrero and Blitzkrieg. It's a very mm-hmm. similar Blitzkrieg. cruiserweight opener. Yeah, he, he was there for a cup of coffee. Uh, I think J- Jerome Young or something his real name was. American. No, that's um, that's um, New Jack. New Jack. New 
Hugh Jackson, Dr- Dr- Jerome Ross, then, mate. So I'll have to look it up because I probably completely butchered it twice there. But Hoovy and Blitzkrieg had a, a, a lovely, brilliant, fantastic contest. And yet, if you watch it very carefully, and like in my instance, you watch it for the 29th time, uh, you can see little moments where they're kind of like walking each other up into position and, and things don't make a lot of sense and it's very overly spotty. But the same advice goes for this match, it goes for that, is if you just sit back, don't take it too seriously. Not not saying don't take it seriously at all, because you know if you if you're gonna measure matches against each other, you want to be critical. You you have to really delve in. But to to be a fan, learning about the cruiserweights in the 90s, you just got to sit back and relax and enjoy. And if you do that, this is an absolutely blinding opening. And I'm glad that I brought up a reference to Spring Stampede 99, because you guys talking about Bobby Heenan showing his his worst traits, and he absolutely does in this match. It reminds me that even three years on almost at Spring Stampede 99 they'd have those cruiserweight matches they'd have Tanay come on just for those uh, yeah. calls and it'd be the exact same thing and <laughs> still be mocking and nothing changed and we've mentioned this podcast before Bobby Heenan yeah we all love him he's brilliant he has, he has some absolutely all-time great moments but as you go through his WCW tenure he's trying less and less yeah there's a there's an absolute a jock mentality, you know, it's the old school, isn't it? Yeah, they're, they're nerds for doing their job and all that. And, you know, the, the the more it wears on, the more he leans into it. And I think part of the reason he got away with it for a little bit longer than a, a JBL, say, was that he'd always take the mickey out of himself as well. He'd show more arse than most people. He was the most butt-naked common co- colour commentator of all time. Uh, and because he did take the, the mick out of himself as well, he managed to ride it for a bit. But, but yeah, sometimes it was a bit too much. It's a shame. But, yeah, the, yeah. the match can't be full. This is a great opener for what it was setting out to accomplish. Ticked all the boxes. Yeah. Um, Jer- Blitzkrieg, by the way, Jeremiah Ross, I just looked up. Oh, oh I said um, Jerome Ross close. was my yeah. second boss. Yeah. Um, so... And also, it was it was um, it was introducing a, as as you you touched on um, Rob introducing a completely new style that, that most people in North America wouldn't have um, wouldn't have seen before, and that leads me on to something I want to ask you both. Seeing as as Rob, you said you know you've been watching through all the paper, WW pay per views chrono- chronologically. Um, back on episode fifty three, we had with special guest Doug Williams, we reviewed Super Bowl nineteen ninety two, and of course there was the famous opening match between Jushin Liger and Brian Pillman, which was again introducing a completely new style of, of cruiserweight wrestling to a North American audience. How do you think this match compares to Liger v Pillman? That's a really, really good question. Um, I will say that, first of all, we did a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago uh, on how to be great. Um, the, the, very quickly, the notion of how to be great is we take a particular topic and we come up with a, a top five list, list of the greatest um, of those things. And we did best 90s pay-per-views. Uh, and we included Super Bowl 1992. That got onto our list of five because I think it's just an absolute pearler of a show, um, and that, including that match. And uh, Pillman and Liger, I think, were a bit different because they were meshing a couple of styles. Um, you know, Liger, you know, coming from a Japanese background, although he had worked uh, in England, 
uh, and Pillman, you know, knowing North America, in particular Canada, and also traveling around a bit. There's a, it's a bit more of a North American, Japanese, European hybrid, their matches, whereas Ray versus Psychosis is basically Americanized Lucha Libre. You know, it's a, it's a, an Americanized, it's a, well, it's, it's Chiquito. <laughs> you know, it's a kind of, it's not quite full on Mexican, but it's uh, it's yes. westernized a little bit. Um, but the other matches are a little bit more of a hybrid. I, I personally prefer Pillman and Liger more. Um, if I'm honest, but I think it's a little bit more realistic looking, but you're right to flag it up. That's kind of the first installment of WCW bringing this new uh, sort of wrestling. And of course, in that era, you've also got Muta and a few others that were uh, around as there was obviously the, the famous Starcade New Japan crossover, wasn't there? So there's there's plenty of Japanese influence there uh, in earlier WCW, but this is probably the first time we really start to see Mexico. And of course, on this show later on, we'll see Conan, and around about this time, you know, we start to introduce Super Calo and Juventud Guerrera, and it's it, there's a there's a real sort of long list of them that starts coming up now, and it influences the the whole cruiserweight style. But I think you're right to flag up Pillman and uh, Liger as probably the the pioneers of this, as far as WCW goes, anyway. Yeah, and also it's worth bearing in mind that um, although they weren't necessarily um, fighting each other all the time, that that, um, that Liger is uh, Keiichi Yamada's real name. He he worked in Stampede Wrestling in '87, where with a, a very young um, Brian Pillman. So they would have been, you know, mildly familiar with each other, should we say? Um, whereas obviously, as, as has been mentioned in the commentary, yeah. Um, Psychosis and Ray started their careers together and have gone through at this point have gone through their entire careers side by side. Um, Liam, anything to add there? Ah, uh, not outside the stuff I've already added. I think. No, <laughs> cool. Okay, we will move on then to um, a very different match number two, um, which is the Carson City Silver Dollar match between Big Bubba and John Tenter. So there's a contrast for you from the opener. Um, there is a bag, or it looks more like a sock, filled with silver dollars on top of a pole, which we've ex- we're expecting one of these guys to climb, apparently, to win the match. Um, so it, it feels, it looks very strange to see John Tenter, because A, he's billed under his real name. He's wearing a sort of a mishmash of of long, um, long black tights, which you never normally see him in, and a plain blue singlet. Um, and he's got half his head shaved, and his beard has gone with just a moustache left. So, I mean, what what had happened to him? I'm presuming he must have been attacked previously by Big Bubba. Is that right, Liam? Got it in one. That's what exactly what has led us to this match. Um, we're we're a little bit before pole matches would get quite overdone in WCW, bro. Uh, but this one, yeah, you've got the stipulation because, I don't know, we haven't really got that far in the watch-alongs, but from my memory, um, yeah, this is going to be the foreign object du jour. Yes, we also um, know there's the haircutting element as well, and we'll we'll, yeah. we'll look at that in a little bit, I think. And there's um, also, obviously, um, Tenta was in the, the Dungeon of Doom, but, um, but Bubba is the one that has got... Um, that has got uh, Jimmy Hart in his corner. Big Bubba, of course, the latest in many gimmicks for Ray Trailer. Um, so Bubba tries to get the dollars, but Tenta slams him off the top rope to the canvas. Tenta climbs, tries to climb, but can only get as far as the top rope before he's cut off. 
Uh, Bubba tries to climb again. He gets crotched on the top rope, realizing that he can't climb the pole, which does make me wonder why on earth you'd sign for the match in the first place. Tenza tries to unhook the pole from the ring post, but he gets intercepted by Bubba, who chokes him out with a leather belt, which is perfectly legal in this no-DQ match. He then uses wrist tape to tie up Tenta to the middle rope and starts whipping Tenta with the belt. Um, Bubba tries to get Tenta's remaining hair with some scissors, but gets low blowed. Tenta then uses the scissors to cut himself free. Um, Tenta tries to cut the pole free, but is intercepted with Bubba landing a huge spine buster on Tenta. Bubba then orders Jimmy Hart to climb the pole, and the 53-year-old Hart climbs the pole with ease, but Tenta recovers, and Hart is about 15 feet up in the air, because his pole is quite some way up there, clutching on to the pole for dear life. Hart slides down the pole, is met by Tenta, who grabs the sock of dollars, slugs Bubba in the face with it, and pins him straight after, as it turns out in true WCW fashion that they hadn't actually explained the match stipulations for us in the first place, and you still have to pin, pin them to win. So Tenta wins in... 9 minutes, 14 seconds of of a somewhat plodding match, would we say, Rob? Somewhat plodding. Um, if the first match that we saw was ahead of its time, this was, <laughs> so, this was so far behind its time, time was disappearing into the distance. Um, I find this era so fascinating, and actually this show in itself so fascinating because for what we're turning into what wcw is morphing into what nitro has taken it along everything we always talk about with nitro quite rightly is the nwo and is the cruiserweights and is goldberg and all these kind of things there's lots of great stories it's forgotten that in 1996 we've still got these late 80s early 90s hangovers of not failed wwf characters but ones that WWF don't have anymore and have now ended up here. So this is the boss man versus earthquake. Let's face yeah. it. And it's turned into big brother versus the shark or versus John Tenter. John Tenter is actually dressed like, and looks like what wrestlers end up looking like on the indies when they can't use their gimmick names, except he's in WCW. He's not even in, you know, um, you know, Oklahoma city wrestling here. He's in WC effing W and he still looks like an indie worker. Um, I, <laughs> My favourite thing in terms of this not being thought through is, as you said, Dean, the point where Tenta goes to... First of all, it's quite a clever little spot that he goes to the corner with some scissors or with a knife to try and cut away the uh, the big pole to bring it down rather than having to climb it. But for that to have happened, the commentary team had to foreshadow it by basically saying how shit the pole was and how badly attached it was. And then the fact that they basically went, oh, look, that's really attached by by some sticky tape. They they out they outright said that's not attached very well, so that Tenta had a chance to cut it down. And going back even further, it should be mentioned that this pole was in the corner of the ring during Rey Mysterio versus Psychosis. Someone put it up before the show started, and just went, ah, oh, we just won't explain why there's a great big pole in the middle of the corner of the ring. <laughs> <laughs> so I watched the first match going. There's a great big pole there. What's that doing there? And it was never really mentioned. Um, you know, generally, this is a, a real sort of old school cluster. You know what? Uh, yeah. It doesn't really do much for anybody. Uh, it feels like a lot of the, the good work that was done in the first match is, is undone here. This is pretty uh, This is pretty hard to watch. What I will say is where you look at the, the future of these two guys. Because at this point, you go, the pair of them, old, washed up, irrelevant. 
And actually, within a couple of years, the boss man had slimmed down, Ray Trailer, I should say, had slimmed down, gone back to WWF, become relevant as the boss man in, in Vince's corporation, and held a very strong mid-card spot for another three or four years. Tenta, however, this was in uh, sort of the middle of 1996, or August 1996, he wouldn't have another pay-per-view appearance for just over two years when he would appear at 1998 SummerSlam as Golga mm. in a tag team match against Kai and Ty alongside his fellow Oddity. So it turned out very differently for these two guys, but it definitely feels like the we're coming to the end of that, well, we're coming to the end of what should have been that era for these sort of late 80s, early 90s WWF guys just yeah. doing their job badly in WCW. Well, I think this is, this is it's interesting here, and it kind of, this foreshadows the, the main event in a way, because... As you rightly said, Rob, um, Big Bubba or Ray Trailer never had as good a gimmick as the Big Boss Man, and never really made a success of any gimmick post Boss Man in WCW, and had to go back to to cement it in in the WWF. Similarly, John John Tenter never ever had anywhere near as much success when he was when he was earthquake and what we're then getting in the main event is razor ramon and diesel as they were known to the vast majority of wrestling fans and partly for for legal reasons i know but they you know the 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 gimmick, if you want to call it that, that they they come up with in the end is just to call them by their real names because and just have them as they are. There's there is no gimmick, no character they can come up with that can replicate the success they've had in the WWF. No, not really. And I suppose there's, there's we could play slight semantics about what is a gimmick and what is a, a moniker because I would actually argue that although he was called the Big Boss Man on both occasions. The, the first Ray Trailer stint in the WWF to the second are quite different. You know, forget the heel babyface dynamic, but the boss man is very over the, the first incarnation of the boss man is very over the top, you know, hard times and all that. And, and even the way he worked was different. He was heavier, but he actually worked quicker. He used to do the run around the ring and the roll under the bottom rope and that kind of thing. When he came back as the boss man, the, 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 the protection guy, as opposed to the, the prison guard, yeah. He was very different. He was much more sneaky. He was much more of a veteran. He was much more of, you know, Vince's guy. There was an evolution of that character. It was still clearly the same person, but there was an evolution there. I would say that Earthquake Pete, when he was um, facing down Hogan and, and then squashing Jake the Snake's reptile, and from then on, it was really just a watering down into the natural disasters and then into Avalanche and then into the shark. I think from what I've heard about John Tenter, I've always heard that he was a really, really nice fellow. Absolutely. He was huge and he was an absolutely lovely bloke. Yes, I had the pleasure of meeting him on, on a couple of occasions. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. Genuinely. Good. I'm, I'm always pleased to hear that. And uh, and by the way, same goes for his tag team partner, who's a lovely fellow, Big Fred Ottman, who I have met. Um but um, the thing about so what I'm prefacing this by saying is I'm saying something nice about John Tender before I say something nasty, um, and which is sad because he's no longer with us. But I've always felt he really represents that era of, well, I don't think he's particularly great in the ring. And he was a terrible interview. And it's like he literally only is there because of his size. You know, there's other people that had his size that could work, but he was just give, given a gimmick of being a big guy. And that is it. He had nothing past that is what that was. And, We'll tend to see that once that you know is used up, and I'm not saying he was as bad as you know you know a giant Gonzalez or anything, but 
once that's used up, you've kind of got nothing. And I think he was doing quite well to even still be around at this point. I feel like I'm being really harsh there because he's, I understand why he's beloved as Earthquake because a lot of people sort of grew up watching WWF in that era and it's it's very fond to them when they're a kid. But when you really, really look at John Tenter, the worker in the ring, you know, he's he's not great. He's no he's he's no Rikishi, he's no Eviscera, he's no Yokozuna as a you know, a working big guy. I think he had great charisma, especially as a as a heel, not so much as a babyface, but I think he had great in ring charisma, the un the unspoken stuff, you know. But uh, anyway, we have we have gone off on a, a massive tangent. Um, Liam, your thoughts on this uh, Carson City Silver Dollar match? Yeah, um, is this still episode sixty nine? Nice. Nice. Yeah. yeah, because you you guys may have veered into seventy or seventy one, but no, uh, we <laughs> we do we do know when we have guests who are coming on, we know if they can talk, we are ready. And we said to ourselves, right, we got we're gonna have some chinwags here, so this is all good stuff. And I am buttering you up because I am about to throw up a, as the kids call it, hot take slash counterpoint. I kind of enjoyed this match, guys. Um, and the reason I think I got a kick out of it is, I suppose, I came in with low expectations. I wasn't expecting it to be a, a great match. It, yeah, to see these two guys wheeled out in a pay-per-view slot uh, in 1996 is a bit groan-inducing. That's after I got over the sheer shock of seeing them the way they came out. As as Rob mentioned earlier, Big Boss Man, The Earthquake, one of my favourite uh, shows of all time, my, my Bible of a show growing up, my first live event was the Battle Royal at the Royal Albert Hall. Oh, and yes. that featured the Big Boss Man as the virtuous good guy going up against the, the sinister earthquake managed by Jimmy Hart. And here's Hill Jimmy Hart coming out with a sneering Ray trailer. What has happened to my world, guys? So I got <laughs> over that. And I started to watch the match. And I had, I had very low expectations. But they've done something quite clever here. And there is evidence to back up why this is clever. First off, they use a lot of shortcuts in this match. You know, there's objects, there's this, there's that. There's Jimmy Hart getting involved. But... You think about a lot of matches that use all, all the shortcuts like going round, brawling outside, going up to the stage and all your classic shortcuts you see in a lot of matches. And yet all the shortcuts here actually have a, a, a story to them. Like when they get the pair of scissors out because um, Big Bubba wants to cut the rest of Tenta's hair off. You know, that act of disrespect he's done. Yep. The scissors come loose and they get him free from the from the tied-up position. They then serve a purpose in the threat of cutting the straps off. And yeah, it was a bit hokey, but I also appreciate how the scissors segued into that. And you'll notice how they do the thing where he starts to cut him, but he stops. You notice how he cut the middle one out of three. Uh. Because then yeah. you're, not, you're not sabotaging it when you've got when you need Jimmy Hart to climb it later. So I you cut the middle that, one. Yes. You cut the middle one. It stays solid as a rock. I'm bringing the physics, y'all. Um, <laughs> and then they have. And I, I, I'm a sucker for that. Yo, if done right, and G, Jimmy Hart's never gonna do this wrong. I'm a sucker for the finish where the bad guy manager, the heel, uh, thinks he's doing good. I done good. I done good. He turns. Oh no, I done bad. Tenter's right there, and he grabs the things and he socks him with all those shortcuts and the story within them, rather than just having them brought into the crowd out of laziness, for instance. Why did they work? Why was it clever? Listen to the pop for the finish. 
because that crowd yeah. wasn't particularly into the match. It was slow. They just got given uh, the filet mignon that was that was Mysterio psychosis, and now they've got this uh, this McDonald's Big Mac of, of these two. And they weren't into that match, but the finish they got really into because it was logical, it made sense, and they got a good, entertaining, fun payoff. It was gratifying to see him outsmart the guys who were humiliating him. It's basic storytelling, and it rescued this fucking match, in my opinion. But I've got to mention again, I know I said it earlier, but 53-year-old Jimmy Hart climbing up that pole like it's no like it's no effort at all. The man we've we've seen him a few years later in that match with Man Cow, haven't we? Where the, the man just defies defies time. Man Cow, Jesus Christ! And of course, you 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 shared the ring with Jimmy Hart for one match, didn't you? I believe you were a manager. That night. Yes, I can't that's, that's right. He was a special guest referee, and I uh, I managed uh, the team of Paul Birchall, Paul Travell, and some, some other fella yeah. whose name eludes me right now. Yeah, um, Terry, someone uh, they'll come Jerome back. Jerome Young. Um, Jerome Young. <laughs> so um, yeah, we go backstage to Mean Gene, who's with our babyface WCW team for the main event. Sting, Lex Luger, and Randy Savage. They all have their faces painted in Sting designs. Pretty generic babyface hype promo because they don't know who all three of their opponents are at this stage. Now, Liam, I do have to ask you this: as we have been watching through the the Nitro watch alongs, we have established that. One of the greatest things of mid nineties, sorry, mid ninety six WCW is this tag team of Sting and Lex Luger, the heel and the baby face, and Luger pulling the wool over Sting's eyes. It's my crack. How yes. do we? Sorry. It's my crack. It, it, it is. It is. It's the good stuff. How how have we gone from Luger being like that to being full blown babyface to team up with Sting and Savage here? So obviously they kind of need uh, Luger to be full blown babyface for this slot because you don't really want you know mid carders in the role. You need the three big guns. So those three big guns are going to be Sting, Luger, and Savage. So I've got to get to this point where you know Savage isn't at his throat anymore. Though uh, Sting and Luger are pretty straight laced on the same side. Fair enough. But funny enough, it wasn't like they magicked it to that for this match. Um, they would actually, and we're about to get to this. We are. Uh, I don't think there was an April '96 pay-per-view. I think the next pay-per-view is Slamboree in May. And as we go through, we've just gone past Uncensored on the watch-alongs and the and the Nitro after Uncensored. And as we go through the next eight to ten, we'll see this transition. And the majority of it is is to oppose the man who will soon on Nitro become the new World Heavyweight Champion. Is the uh, the World Heavyweight Champion on this pay-per-view is the Giant. And yeah. he would defend the belt against Sting and Luger, I believe, uh, in consecutive pay-per-views before we get to the point where, no, hold the phones, the outsiders are the primary threat. So that would tide us over. And from what I remember, I believe then there was a bit of a transition. I'm hoping, Dean, as much as you probably will be, from because my, my recollection of every happening on nitros isn't like pinpoint until i rewatch them again i'm kind of hoping that the transition's pretty smooth but we'll we'll see how it goes tune into the watch longs with us everyone they're pretty fun yeah and hulk hogan doesn't show up a lot for the next few months so the coast no. is clear 
<laughs> yeah, the next pay per view I just checked was Slambury '96, which was in um, May and was uh, yep. one of their hokey lethal lottery type things, which we we have not covered. <laughs> Who knows if we actually will? Because it doesn't look the greatest. Anyway, next match it is a taped fists match between Diamond Dallas Page and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. So Duggan comes out to his typical pop from the crowd. This match is apparently for the Battle Bowl ring that was earned by Page and in stolen the lethal by lottery. Duggan. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> Funny how it works like that, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so, so yeah. That's um, so basically, Paige earned it. Duggan stole it, but Duggan is the babyface. Oh yeah, have I got that one right? Um, because Paige drags. Sorry, go for it. WCW. That, that's all <laughs> I had. I, was, I thought you'd have clocked onto that. Sorry. Very good point. I, I hadn't thought of that. No. Yeah. Big part. If only there was some sort um, of subtle clue as to where I was going with that. If only, yeah. So um, Paige drags Duggan to the ring post. He tapes his legs together around the post, which is a really uh, good move. Um, a unique move, I suppose. He then takes the tape off of Duggan's fists, but a headbutt to Duggan hurts Paige more than Duggan, and Paige is then all tangled up in the ropes, getting punched. Um, he's really putting on a show here. It's all Duggan with Paige bumping around for him. The finish comes out of nowhere. Paige gets thrown back into the ring from the outside, but as Duggan re-enters the ring, Paige kicks the middle rope into his groin. Then he hits a diamond cutter on the stuns Duggan for the three count in just five minutes, 39 seconds. Duggan then tapes his fist up after the match and decks Paige. Um, so short and reasonably inoffensive, would you say, Rob? I guess so. Um, I think if you again, if you're looking at a point in time, you're looking at about the old, washed-up hacksaw Jim Duggan against the young, fresh, um, on his way to the top D- DDP. Um, Duggan is two years older than Paige, <laughs> <laughs> but you just—it's it's just a, when you see the the moment in time that this uh, this happened to be. I think Jim Duggan was born about fifty. Um, he's actually about—he's actually about forty-two here, but. Um, he just always seemed like an old man, didn't he? And uh, mm. you know, by this point, um, you know, he's he's by no means a, you know an old codger, but he just feels a little bit uh, like his day has gone. And Paige is on his way up, and I think this is just before Paige really started to take off. I think, but this this next, the last six months of 1996, I think is it was really crucial to Diamond Dallas Page. It's where even as a heel, you know, fans started to take to him. I think he's just a he's either just had some matches with Eddie Guerrero or he's just about to um, in this timeline. And I think the fans just cottoned on to the fact that he just seemed like a hard worker, an honest sort of fella. And, and they wanted to see someone like that succeed. And he, he had some charisma. So I, I think to me, this is all about DDP. It's just a bit of a, a plot on his graph. Um, as far as Duggan goes, I was never a big Duggan guy. It might be because even as a kid, I never bought the USA USA stuff because, well, quite frankly, I'm not an American um, and I never understood why this hero baby face always seemed to cheat. And if he didn't, if he wasn't cheating by taping his fists, he was attacking people after he lost with his two by four. I never thought there was a lot that was very virtuous about Hacksaw Jim Duggan. I viewed him as a heel basically my entire life and couldn't work, <laughs> couldn't work out why these people were cheering for him. Well, essentially it's because they happened to share the same country uh, and that is about it. And he had a big flag. Um, I actually met Jim Duggan a couple of years ago, uh, just over two years ago. Uh, in Yeovil, of all places, very comfortable <laughs> to, to do a show. Uh, and I interviewed him for the, the old incarnation of our podcast. And I am very, very pleased to announce that, well, not announce, but to report that he really, really is a nice man. Yes, yeah, so uh, was really welcoming. 
really easy to chat to, great interview. It was interesting, right? He was there to do a bit of a, not quite a one-man show, but a bit of some stories from his days on the road um, before doing a, a bit of an appearance on the show later. Uh, and so I interviewed him and then stayed for his um, one-man show. Let's just say my interview and his one-man show were fairly similar. Some of the same stories came out. I'm not sure. I think he just uh, knocks out the same sort of after-dinner thing. But that's not a knock. He was a really, really nice man. Um, very Clearly very still very in love with his wife and happy to travel the world and, and be, a, be a wrestler and be a hero. And and, uh, and he made me shout ho with him. So... <laughs> Nice, nice, nice fella. As far as this match goes, I think it's um, it's um, I think it's one of the more minor points on this particular pay per view, um, but the story of DDP has been on your show and will be again, uh, an integral one of the whole WCW thing. Yeah, Liam. Yeah, so the Eddie Guerrero series was hovering around October. I know this because we covered Halloween Havoc '96. As we said earlier, it was one of, one of the better shows we've done so far. Another 96 pay-per-view. And he won there. And he, he well, I remember it being quite a quite a decisive win. We were surprised when we looked back at it, weren't we, Dean? That had yeah. Just how decisively he beat Eddie Guerrero. And I think a rib injury may have cut the match short or changed the finish for it. But nonetheless, he looked really good. And... It's not something that's obvious the way we're looking at these pay-per-views randomly, but I'm sure the Nitro watch-alongs, especially when Nitro becomes the, the head of their content over Saturday night, starting May 27th for goes to as When we start to get to there, I'm sure we'll see a lot more DDP on Nitro, and we can charter his whole rise chronologically. But we'll remember with Uncensored 96, with that no-good Rob McNichol spot stealing, you know what, Paul Benson, when he when he hogged one of those slots, uh, he covered Uncensored 96 with us, and that's where we saw him have to lose to the Shudder, the booty man, and the storyline <laughs> was he was he he was banished from WCW, and between that and Slamboree, and I'm hoping we see some of this on the Nitros that we're covering very soon on the watch-alongs, he's, you know, he's, he's without a job, he's, I don't know if he's destitute or whatever, and we've made comments about his, his ragged clothes in some of these appearances, haven't we, Dean? And you'll mm. notice here, he's wearing lovely brand new tights for the match against Duggan. Uh, he has won the, the Battle Bowl and the lethal lottery at Slambury. So he's, he, the idea is he's he's on he's on the up and up, and he's still the cigar chomping arrogant heel. But the big difference in this match for me is you notice he has you know there's some shenanigans this that and the other, but he's pretty much wrapped this up clean as you like with a diamond cutter, about yes. as clean as it gets. And this is big for someone like DDP. Because for the longest of times, he couldn't even get a clean win over the likes of Dave Bloody Sullivan. He was very much lower heel. Now we're watching him slowly transition into a proper mid-carder slash upper mid. And that is what happens over the summer. And that's why Hacksaw Jim Duggan is not a great opponent, but he's a great plot device. Because he's he's over like Rover. Everyone knows him. He's a big name. And yet he's completely expendable at this stage. Yeah, Just give him his heat him back. Yeah. And it won't matter to Duggan. He'll still get the same cheers next time around. Give him his tape fist punch at the end. Let him say ho. And you can wheel him out for the next rising hill and do the exact same thing. And they all get the same benefit. So this is a big moment for DDP compared to what he'd been doing for two to three years before this in WCW. And when you're, when you're having better matches against the Eddie Guerrero's by Halloween Havoc, 
and looking even more impressive in the meantime, it's clearly a step in the right direction. So it's yeah. it's a, this is a stepping stone. It's an important thing. And because we're looking the back of this retrospectively, it makes it a lot easier to appreciate this for what it is. So does the fact that it's only five minutes. Yes. And I think yeah, that is an important point that I, I was going to make if, if you hadn't. So good. Thank you for covering it. Um, You're welcome. Basically, that they that they said the commentators actually say nobody kicks out of the diamond cutter, and he didn't, and it's a clean win, and it really helps put that move over. Mm. So and uh, that so, is yeah. why that when Rob mentions like he was starting to get get over with the fans, yeah, I'm sure they appreciate some of the the deeper things beneath the surface. I think you're right in that respect. But the biggest thing of that is yeah, things like having a diamond cutter that no one kicks out of. Little thing, it's amazing. Where, when people say, oh, well, you know who when I'm referring to, when you hear like such silly lines in modern wrestling parlance as, as pins and submissions and wins and losses don't matter. They're, they're just things. It's funny how yeah? you give someone constant wins, protect their finisher. Suddenly, they do much better than the guys who don't. Oh, Crazy. Definitely. That. Yeah. Okay, we're back with Mean Gene. He interviews Jimmy Hart, Kevin Sullivan, and The Giant, who is, as uh, you mentioned, Liam, the world champion at this point in time, ahead of their tag team match with Arn Anson and Chris Benoit. Giant denies that Sullivan is the weak link in the Dungeon of Doom. They're still pushing that the Giant is the son of Andre. Um, at the end of the interview, Jimmy Hart is stood next to Mean Gene, and Gene says to him, I don't mean to offend you, but will you brush your teeth? Which I thought was brilliant. Um, we then go to the the voice of Tony the Tiger, Lee Marshall, who is with um, Anderson and Benoit. Um, Marshall explains that if the horsemen can pin either Sullivan or the Giant, one of the horsemen, um, a horseman of their choice, I guess, can get a world title shot on Monday Nitro. Um, Anderson also addresses the main event and throws his support behind the WCW team. And and this go alongside things like, as you said, Bobby Heenan agreeing with Shivani and Dusty. It's things like that. It's a really nice little touch that adds even more anticipation and even more um, more at stake, more value to that main event. And, and it foreshadows how everyone in WCW came to speak out against Hogan's heel turn in the coming weeks. So I thought that was a really nice little touch. Mm. Um, so, match number four is a double dog collar match, which sees Public Enemy against the Nasty Boys. So, Public Enemy come out first, carrying a table, waving their arms in the air. The Nasty Boys then come out, slapping hands. So, I'm really not sure who the heels are, if, or if they're both baby faces. Um, again, it's not explained how you win this. All we know is it is Texas Tornado rules. And the infamous WCW split screen from Uncensored 96 gets wheeled out again, which... Uh, brings back awful memories of that tag match that we covered with uh, with Paul Benson. Um, the action quickly spills to the floor. Rubbish bins are used as weapons. The ringside area is covered in rubbish. Um, grunge and knobs are brawling in the sand that forms part of the bash at the beach set. We then see an inflatable rubber shark being used as a weapon. Um, it looks like it's false count anywhere in this match because the referee's counting a pinfall attempt in the sand. Rocco Rock climbs the lifeguard tower but gets yanked off the towel by the chain that's around his neck and takes a bump onto the sand, catching sags on the way down. Um, the tower then gets toppled over. It's basically all weapon shots in the style of ECW, which obviously was very popular at that time. Um, a table finally gets broken to not much of a pop. Um, all four finally get back in the ring, which indicates we must be approaching the finish. The table that Public Enemy brought with them is now in the ring. Um, 
Rocco Rock gets pulled off the top rope through the table, but it doesn't break. Rock is laid across it, and Sags climbs to the middle rope, wrapping the chain around his elbow, but it still doesn't break. Grundy's being hanged over the top rope. Rock gets run into the chain that is hanging Grunge, and he's clotheslined by it, and he gets pinned directly as a result of that in 11 minutes, 25 seconds, and Tony Schiavone's summary immediately afterwards was, that was a mess. Um, the fight, <laughs> the fight continues after the match, and they finally break the table because, of course, Rob, you've gotta get your shit in. Uh, yes, you have, and I, I rather like the the fact that um, the table wouldn't sell. It was a bit like uh, the a third member of the Legion of Doom or something. It just was refusing <laughs> to acknowledge that these other tag teams could actually hurt them. But uh, yes, a bit of a, a resistant table. Um, it's not the I I didn't I didn't like this match, but it, it, this is not the kind of match for me. This is the kind of match where I accept that this is just not for me. You know, this this to me is like this is not a direct example, but this is a little bit like listening to an Ariana Grande song to me. Is that I'm not going to like it, but it's not aimed at me. I, I'm yeah. just, I just I just accepted that the, these kind of things end. I've never liked ECW stuff. I've never liked hardcore matches. To me, this is. Ah, not, not a. This is not something I'm interested in watching. However, that doesn't mean it's not successful. It doesn't mean that the uh, the kind of thing that uh, they were putting on here is not of you know of the appeal to some people. And what I will say directly about the Nasty Boys is that WCW booked the Nasty Boys way better than the WWF did. And most people that understand who the Nasty Boys are will probably be familiar with them because of the WWF. But they were trying to have matches in an era where where. People will rave about a certain era of the WWF tag division, and they're right to when it was the Hearts and the Bulldogs and the Killer Bees and the Rougeos and the, the Rockers and Demolition and the Brainbusters and whatever. But four or five years later, by the time you get to the Bushwhackers, the Beverly Brothers, the Natural Disasters, LOD, the Nasty Boys, Money Inc., the tag team division is rubbish. They're, they're iconic t- teams, but their matches are rubbish. And, but they tried to have the Nasty Boys have ordinary matches, and it didn't really work. In WCW, they at least go, okay, sod it. Just let them fight. And mm-hmm. they just give them people like Cactus Jack to fight. And um, who was it? Who was Jack? Oh, I forget who it was. It was Jack and someone else, wasn't it? Max they had the, Payne. Uh, and they Max also Payne. Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan. As Sullivan's well. in there as well. And, and now they're with the public enemy. No one's ever going to pretend that the Nasty Boys and the public enemy are going to have a two out of three falls match that's going to look like you know Rock and Roll Express versus the Midnight's. But but just let them go and fight for ten minutes and just let them have the plunder. Not my thing, but on a on a show that doesn't necessarily have much else of it, you know this this doesn't offend me. Put it that way. Fair enough, Liam. Yeah, well I'm glad you guys mentioned the matches they had with Cactus, with uh, Max Payne, Kevin Sullivan by his side. We've covered one of those so far in the podcast. That was Spring Stampede '94, wasn't it, Dino? Mm-hmm. That was yeah. the Max Payne one. And you you need to when when Rob mentions about you know to each their own different styles for different people and, all, and things like that. You need to watch that pair of matches that the Nasties had with Cactus Jack and his partners to appreciate that the Nasties attempted to recreate that magic so many times since then against Harlem Heat. And I suppose Public Enemy was one of those opponents where it was destiny that that the Public Enemy and the Nasty Boys would have a feud, you know, similar bedfellows and all that. But every time they came and did this sort of match, it was diminishing returns. It got more plodding. It got less interesting. 
uh, it made less sense. Some of the spots were rather than making you. I remember Dean always talks about how the spots in those Cactus Jack matches were going made him react, and there's nothing like it. You're too busy looking at his stupid double camera. Uh, so, yeah, it's well past his expiry date, and even if you are into that style of thing, and I'm not a massive big, super hardcore deathmatch kind of guy, but I do love some of those wild brawls that mm. you see. We're, with those, uh, the, the, the Slambury, Spring Stampede 94 ones being a good example, and as someone who seems to have more of an appreciation for them than Rob, I'll say that this particular Ariana Grande CD was awful. <laughs> <laughs> By the other Ariana CDs. Yeah, this is this is kind of phoning it in, isn't it? And I think it also goes to show. And I don't want to go into a massive tangent because we're 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 running long anyway. But come back for part two of, of this episode. <laughs> it does kind of show the the magic of Paul Heyman in how he was able to get these two guys over so much in ECW, and then when they when they took people like Public Enemy, like Sandman, like Mikey Whipwreck out of ECW and put them in WCW and then they wondered why they weren't getting over. Yeah, quite. Sabu's another one. You know, yes. there's plenty of them. Um, but listen, I think all companies do that to an extent because you could argue that, you know, Goldberg's never done it outside of WCW. You could even argue someone like Too Cool, you know, in, in 99 and 2000. Too Cool was su- um, unbelievably over. Mm. But if they'd have come along five years earlier, five years later, or in another company, it just wouldn't have happened. It was just of its moment, of its time, and and sometimes just things take off. Once again, that happens in football. You guys know your football. You're Ipswich Charlton fans. There'll have been players that were brilliant Thanks for your for club. Thanks for Well, <laughs> there would have been... There would have been players that were brilliant at your club and terrible somewhere else. And there would have been players that you brought in who were great somewhere else and were rubbish for you. It, it happens. To it's you. usually it's that way them. around. Yeah. It's like, well, what the hell's happened to this person? He now can't hit a cow's ass with a banjo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it has been for you over the last, last couple yes. of years. I want a bit boys. Yeah. Yes, but hey, Liam, the uh, football fixes were announced uh, for the coming season, and the uh, because WCW field trip to Charlton v Ipswich isn't scheduled until April next year, by which time hopefully they'll allow fans into the stadium, but um, hopefully also your club will still exist. I was going to say that's the more uh, that's the more dependent of the two. It's more more likely to have crowds in that we actually have a football club to go and watch. So yeah. Fingers crossed for that. Meanwhile, uh, Plymouth have to travel down to Charlton on Boxing Day, I think I saw. Do you still work there, Rob? Is that where you are at the moment? Plymouth? I do a bit of both, actually. I do a little bit for Argyle. And funny enough, I'm the programme editor of Bristol Rovers. And the uh, the last programme I made before the uh, the lockdown ended fixtures was against Ipswich Town. And, and the first programme I'll have to make for the new season is against Ipswich Town. So EFL Cup on the 5th of... Yes. And well, that's the away game, and indeed the first home game of the uh, the actual football season is for Bristol Rovers is against Ipswich Town. So, yeah. uh, no, I think I think um, I'm not sure about. I think Argyle are at. Um, oh, people aren't here for the for the football necessarily, are they? But I don't I don't think quite. Tough. I don't think Charlton Day. I think it's uh, I think it's something else. But yeah, it, it might be. You might be right. I'm not sure. Well, we're the only team that aren't in administration who hasn't signed any players yet. So uh, enjoy the three points. So. Um, <laughs> We go backstage to Mean Gene. He's surrounded by uh, independent wrestler uniform security, and he's threatening legal action against the outsides if they lay a hand on him. Um, and it, again, it just goes to show how everyone across the whole, you know, it's a team effort, and everyone on team, 
literal team WCW that is, are, are really doing such a good job of hyping up the tension and the atmosphere surrounding the main event. Um, uh, yeah, we'll, and we'll... There's, there's a glorious moment. Did you guys spot that moment where Bobby Heenan suggests to Gene that he bung the police officers a few quid to get a name yes. of who went in? And Gene... He has a look on his face. He sells it so well because Gene Oakland, top to bottom this show, I think has been brilliant and he'll get even better. Uh, he does that thing where he's like, oh, good idea. He doesn't say it, just with his body language, good idea. Then stops and does a double take and thinks, hang on a second, you're trying to get me arrested here. Uh, and one other thing I've got to mention about this because you know, this, this might not mean much to a lot of people, but I thought this was brilliant because this is the point where he says about hearing a... A voice. No, this comes later. This All right, well, I've, I've started this. I'm just going to run through this quickly. Fuck it. He says it during one of the other segments about hearing a voice that's very yes. familiar. And the way I, I love this because I, I thought about it way too much, far more than I should have. And if you think about who we know the third man to be, think about how he would speak when he's speaking to Mean Gene. He'd be like, well, you know something, Mean Gene, dude. And now think what we know about Hulk Hogan, the way he speaks if he's just doing a shoot interview. Uh, he speaks a bit more normally, a bit more, you know, a lower tone. And then oh, yeah. consider how he'd be speaking. If he's speaking like that, but he's also trying to speak low hush tone so no one can suss him out. And you'd imagine that there would indeed be something about that voice that someone who knows Hogan as well as Mean Gene would hear and he'd be like it's, he goes it's in my subconscious and I, I, mm. lo I love that moment it was yeah. brilliant I it's I a tiny it was brilliant. little thing but it was amazing yes but it is it's those it's those little details it's the same as watching a great wrestler working in the ring it's it's the little details that make that make so much sense yeah. I mean one I, I remember um Speaking to um, Drew McIntyre shortly after he won the Royal Rumble, and one thing I mentioned to him that not many people may have noticed was like when he was on the floor in that Royal Rumble match, he was always holding on to the bottom rope to sort of note to show that he knows where he is in the ring and to prevent him from falling out or anything like that. And it's a very small detail, but those little things really do make a big difference when, especially if you're re-watching things. I think. Um, anyway, let's move on. That match number. Five now. This is for the WCW Cruiserweight Championship. Disco Inferno is challenging Dean Malenko. So uh, Disco comes out resplendent in an all orange outfit, clearly very popular in the Netherlands. Dave Penzer's microphone suddenly cuts out midway through introducing Dean Malenko, but that's nothing new in WCW. Um, this is certainly a clash of opposing personalities, but Malenko wastes no time laying into Disco, throwing him to the outside. Back in the ring, it's all Malenko. He gets a two count with an awesome looking brain buster five minutes into the match. And Malenko has totally dominated. Every move is being executed so crisply. It's tremendous to watch. It's either high impact maneuvers or submission holds. And he seems to be alternating between the two. Um, Disco manages to reverse a whip into the corner, but then Malenko reverses his reversal. Um, Shivani praises Disco for being able to kick out of all of Malenko's offense. Disco then fires up with punches in the corner corner uh, and counters Malenko's next reversal in the corner seeing as he'd already seen it a few moments ago suddenly it's all disco but then that lasts less than a minute and Malenko's back on the uh, offense and it, it just seems to me to be a really odd dichotomy as you've got disco being completely dominated in the ring while Shivani's singing his praises on commentary 
Uh, Disco blocks a Malenko top rope axe handle and lands a neck breaker for a two count. He hits a swinging neck breaker, starts to dance, then remembers where he is and covers Malenko for another two count. Malenko goes for the Texas Cloverleaf, but Disco counts it with a small package for another two count. Malenko then lands a Tiger Bomb, which sets up the Cloverleaf, and Disco submits in 12 minutes, four seconds. Malenko retains the title. Uh, Rob, your thoughts on this Cruiserweight title match? Yeah, first of all, I'm rather intrigued by Disco Inferno being uh, a big star in the Netherlands. That's uh, I think they would they would have been very into the Vengerboys around the late 90s, you know, that we were past the Disco phase at this stage. But um, um, Disco Inferno was such a strange gimmick in itself, that sort of... Uh, was it is, is another version of a honky-tonk man, you know, being lost in, a, in the wrong era and trying to emulate something else? You know, bear in mind, Saturday Night Fever was made in 1977. Yeah. This is 1996. You know, we're 20 years on from that. It was, I would never had a problem with the disco gimmick, but to me, it's an opening match gimmick or it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a character that gets beaten. What they're trying to do here is take it to its next stage, aren't they? They're trying to break him out of the character and into something else. Um. This kind of ties me into the... I think it's the next match as well. Yes, it is. Um, so I'll say it now and, and cover the both matches. It's very easy to, for us to look back 20-odd years later and go, look at them trying to make Disco Inferno look serious in a 12-minute match. And it does seem a bit silly. But to be fair to WCW, and I think it needs to be done every now and again, is that people like Disco Inferno and indeed people like Steve McMichael and Joe Gomez, who we're going to come on to, You've got to take a chance in some young guys or some up-and-coming guys if you're going to try and build them, change them, make them something in the future. And it's not always going to work. You know, for every Rocky Maivia, there's an Ahmed Johnson. You know, there's even, you know, for every Ahmed Johnson, there's an Ezekiel Jackson. You know, there's that Mm. person that you try to do, whether it's Ryback or whether it's, you know, whoever it might be, this guy that we take and we look at him and think, wow, he's going to be a megastar. And a year later, we've forgotten about him. Or a year later, he's taken the world by storm. Now, I'm not saying that Glenn Gilberti was someone that at that point people were going, oh, he's going to be an absolute megastar. But they are trying something here. And credit has to be given to them for trying something because they're trying to bring him out of his character and tell the story. I think it's an admirable story in this match. I don't think it's a great match because I don't think Glenn is of the, the caliber of worker that Dean Malenko is. And, and, and history has kind of proven that. Um, so I didn't necessarily think this is a great match by any states, um, by any stretch. However... I'm not going to stick the boot in because I think this is this is playing again. I'm sorry to keep doing the football, folks, but this is this is playing an 18, 19 year old in one of his first games. They're going to make mistakes, and sometimes they end up, you know, being transferred to a Premier League team, and sometimes they end up dropping out of football by the time they're 23. And it's I think this feels like blooding a, a youngster, and it's not quite working for me. Okay, Liam. Yeah, the the thing that really got me about this match is they've had it start, they have Disco come out at the beginning, he does, you know, we, we, which is pretty much a, a heel shtick, you know, goading the fans with saying, you, you all want to see me dance, and they have Malenko come out and interrupt him, and the first thing he does is he strikes the, uh, the, the mouthy one who's just been antagonistic on the mic, in the mouth, and you, you set your tone there, and he gets a big pop, you know, the crowd's been pretty good for his show so far. When you give them a good moment, they will pop for it. Um, 
And then they completely do a 180 with the match where we're now looking at Disco's resilience. The storytelling was just so all over the shop. And it's just made all the more hilarious by the fact that Glenn Gilberti spends most of his time now trying to catch attention on social media by ranting about how people don't want spot monkeys or technical wrestlers. They want good storytelling. And when he's in there in a high-profile match with someone who will cover all of the technical aspects, you don't have to worry about anything technical if you're working with Dean Malenko. Storytelling-wise, it's a swing and a miss. So it's ironic that he would he would take that stance considering what we did get out of him from the storytelling phase, which was yeah. nothing. But it, it always seemed to me like Shivani had skipped ahead on his notes and was praising disco's resiliency before anything like that happened before there were any kickouts of big moves or anything yeah. like that and it it's such a odd. shame because like i've been given a lot of praise for certain matches especially some of the below average matches on this card so far praising the the, the way they were booked and the way they were produced and the little subtle storytelling that actually gets a reaction at the crowd and the crowd are such a great barometer in this instance as to what works and what doesn't they yeah. are popping for the stuff that's done well even if it's done by guys who never give you a, a four-star match, they probably wouldn't even give you a two-star match. And they are reacting with silence to the stuff that is just absolutely all over the shop. Things like the dog yeah. collar match and, and this attempt to story control. Now, I will say this one thing, though, is that, yeah, the Disco Inferno character is in a time machine. It is antiquated. But at least Bobby Heenan's pop culture references have a bit of company. <laughs> <laughs> Because I mean, Can I, I just thinking, say... sorry, I was just going to say, I was thinking with with this that you know, if if you wanted to put this across in commentary, and obviously I speak as a as a commentator, surely the better way of doing this would be for Shivani to be almost mocking this as you know, Disco is out of his depth, hasn't got the a chance, this will be over quickly. Yep. Yeah, and then he changes his mind because Disco is changing Massive, his mind as yeah. the match wears on, but that doesn't happen. Sorry, Rob, you're going to say something. No, it's just a couple of couple of things. First of all, I think you're a little bit harsh on on disco and indeed the storytelling in here. I think it's not. I don't think it's a swing and a miss. But to carry on the baseball analogy, it's not that I'm very familiar with baseball, but I, I think it's it's you know it's maybe a double. It's not it's not a swing and a miss, but it's not a home run either. You I think you think he's ground out to first base. I don't want to do too much because I don't really know anything about baseball, <laughs> but I'm just trying to because a du- I'm just <laughs> saying a double is a good thing, so I'm not I'm going to reject that one. <laughs> but I don't think it's a bad. I don't think it's necessarily all that bad. I think they've had a go, and I credit them for having a go. And I think it probably sounded a better idea. Listen, I don't want to get too deep into this. We've done enough tangents as it is, and um... we live for tangents. You, you okay, fire okay. Well, away. I'll do. I'll, I'll do one then. Well, I won't. Do, I won't do it to the full scale that I could, but I'll do it as a minor point. My lookalike, who is calling this show, okay, Tony Schiavone. Um, he's my lookalike, not the other way around. Um. I have never, ever, ever thought he was any good. Now, I think there's a bit of a backlash to that these days because people will like him on the Conrad Thompson podcast he does, but I've never thought he's a good commentator. I don't know if that is controversial to people. I don't know if that's you know defining what people already expect, but I've never thought he's any good. And I think he affects things like this. I think you can put things together in a good manner, and I agree with what Dean says. Shivani was actually saying things that weren't resonating what you saw in the ring, he'd skipped a little bit ahead. To quote the great Eric Morecambe, I think they played all the right notes. I just don't think they played them in the right order. Right order. 
And I like the idea of what they tried here. And I think it seemed a good idea in the booking room. And I don't know who would have booked this because as we'll come on to when we get to the main event, the main event was done so perfectly. I would imagine that was all of Bischoff's focus and that other people worried about the undercard. But whoever put this together, I think, had some quite good ideas. It just didn't quite come off. Um, like a dinner that you've been preparing for a little while, but you've forgotten one good ingredient. It just is a little bit not quite there in the, when it comes to the taste test. And the other thing I'll say about Malenko, um, to give him a little bit more of a modern parallel, because I think this is very rare in wrestling, but it can be done in the right way, is that I don't like the term tweener. Right? I, I think it's a, a ridiculous statement made by people that don't understand wrestling because I've never heard anyone inside wrestling say that. Dean will probably back me up on this. It's, it's the kind of things, it's kind of quotes that marks say where they think they're trying to say things that wrestling f people will say when actually they don't. But what I will say about Malenko is that I think he always towed a little line in between babyface and heel. And it depended on his opponent. And it's a very similar thing to the, that Brock Lesnar does in his current incarnation since he came back, which is that Brock Lesnar is not a baby face or a heel. He's Brock Lesnar. Yeah. And so if he is wrestling someone who is obviously the most dastardly heel in the world, Lesnar is the de facto baby face. And if he is wrestling a beloved hero, Brock Lesnar is the heel, but he is always Brock Lesnar. He doesn't change. Yeah. And actually I, Malenko yeah. is the same here for this entire run for a couple of years where he is the focus of the cruiserweight division Malenko shows up wrestles and leaves now it's hard to love him because he's not full of charisma uh, not doing great promos and so forth but it's also hard to hate him because he's so bloody good at what he does in the ring and so he really is different depending on who he wrestles so if he does wrestle against and at this point Eddie Guerrero is very much a sort of white meat baby face Malenko's the heel but if he's wrestling disco then Malenko becomes the baby face and actually that perhaps does make it harder to tell this story because if this was a, an absolute died in the wool heel that was the champion and that disco also a heel was showing some baby face tendencies the crowd or whoever was watching at home might start to look at disco and go Oh, I sympathise with this guy. Yeah, he is working hard. Yeah, he is trying to be more serious. I kind of like him. I hope he does it. But because Malenko is so respectable, it's hard to like Disco more than Dean. I think that's an issue in that in that particular match, from from my perspective. And that is why the uh, the pre-match thing with putting Disco on the mic and having that whole start just makes absolutely no sense. Mm. Because I'd agree. Yeah, I don't know about the term tweener, but I always like to see, use a different T word. I like to say that they you get certain characters that transcend babyface and heel things and it's all well and good to have them but i think rule number one is they can't really do it uh within one match in one match you're you're one or the other because you're telling one story and if you flitter back and forth within the case of one match sometimes even within one storyline that's when it gets too much for us fans you know i don't have a lot of inside wrestling knowledge but i can speak a lot from looking at the the, the crowd reactions and seeing my own crowd reaction we're going to start thinking oh this is a bit too confused for me and drifting out and yeah it's that that's exactly why this is not such a, a good example of it is because it's not so much how you portray them. And yes, certain guys like Demilenko can carry it, but it's not just a case of how you carry it. It's how you transmit that signal to the fans. And in this yeah. match, the way they have put that to the fans is a very mixed, confusing signal. Yeah. And to, to echo what you were saying about Brock Lesnar, Rob, I mean, I, I remember 
couple of years ago in IPW, there was a, a guy who'd been heel ever since he'd been in the company, and they they turned him babyface by having the other heels in his team turn against him. And I remember him coming to me in a, a bit of a panic afterwards and going, I've, I've never really wrestled babyface. Yeah, what? How am I going to be a babyface? And I just said to him. All you do, I said, don't change anything you do. All you change is who you're doing it to. Um, and and you could kind of see the light bulb would go off above his head because it suddenly it made sense. And you know, the only other difference, I suppose, is rather than snarling at the fans when you come out, you snarl at your opponent. Um, and other than so, that, you, you keep you keep doing the same thing, and you therefore remain true to your your character. The baby face to heel turn. And the heel to babyface turn are two very, very different things. Yes. Um, we're going to see later in the show an incredible example of the former. But when you go from a heel to a babyface, what tends to happen is that the crowd want you to turn anyway. Yes. The crowd are dying to cheer this guy. They realize that, that Steve Austin or Dave Batista or Kurt Angle or Dwayne Johnson or whoever it may be, Diamond Dallas Page, they realize whoever it is, Chris Jericho, they love them. They love the act and they want to be able to cheer the act. They don't want them doing dastardly, cheaty things because they want to be able to cheer them. And so it's actually quite easy. As you say, all they need to do is just reject someone that is more heelish than them. You know, even, even something as simple as, you know, Andre falling out with Bobby Heenan at what WrestleMania was that? Six, seven? Six. Um, you know, it's, you know, even that's it's so easy to do. The babyface to heel one is much harder because you're trying to do that. You, you need to give them a reason to hate you, and, and and Hogan does so later on in this show. I have a problem when it happens too often. You can do it once and then twice. But like Seth Rollins is a great example. Now I'm a huge Seth Rollins fan, and I have been for a very very long time. And I think it's I think he's better than a lot of people give him credit for. But he has gone from being you know hard worker in the Shield to sniveling little bastard in the uh, authority, then dead apologetic to the fans, and then a, a, you know a righteous babyface, and now he's a you know a, an egotistical heel again. Well, there's only so many times you can do that, and if they ever try and bring him back again, it's like, well, this character's got absolutely no centre. There's no there's no thing about Seth Rollins that's true. You know, if you were a fan, if you were if this was a, a relationship, and he wanted you to take him back for a third time as a babyface, you'd just say no. You, you've let me down too many times, mate, and I think that's a real issue. But when you've got someone that's got quite a straight character, like the the opposite of, of what we just said about Brock Lesnar and Dean Malenko having a character, and it depends who they wrestle, is someone like a John Cena and a Roman Reigns, which is they have a kind of character that some people love them and some people hate them. Actually, the NWO, to keep it on topic, is the same. The NWO were the NWO. But some fans hated them for taking away the essence of their pure, lovely WCW. And some fans loved them because they were edgy and cool and different. But they were still the same. They were just different to two sets of people. And I, for years, when people said, when are they going to turn John Cena heel? I would say, you've hated John Cena for, for years. John Cena's been a heel for a decade. You, you know, if you don't like him, he's a heel. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's just the, the reaction that you elicit. I can't believe we've got onto all of that from, from Dean Milenko versus Deep <laughs> Disco Inferno. The worst thing is I certainly have fewer, say. I have fewer opinions on the next three matches, which might mean we can skip on a bit quicker. Well, Rob, never mind that shit. Here comes Mongo. Mango. 
yes. It's Joe Gomez v. Stephen Michael with Deborah. He's got a different dog. Pepe has uh, disappeared. They, the commentators sympathise. Yeah, with they, the face of they, Pepe. they they sold it as a storyline thing. Here's us moaning about on watchalongs. I'm actually looking forward to getting to the Nitro watchalongs that explain the storyline of the dog yes. now. I can't that believe poor it. Dog that gets dressed up in a different outfit every week. And there's an actual storyline. Story it's better line, than yeah. the last match already. Yeah, Sorry. so I've no idea why this WCW worldwide level match is on pay-per-view, but let's hope it's short. Uh, the offense is simple, but Michael has got no idea how to sell any of it, including spinning into the ropes, finding a back elbow. Um, it's mostly McMichael on the offense. Shivani said this, this is Mongo's third ever pro match. So, of course, it's on pay-per-view with a fellow newcomer. Um, he goes for a figure four leg lock, but Gomez small packages him for a two count. Mongo lands a nice body slam, his best defensive move so far. Gomez hits three flying chops and Mongo stumbles around the ring like a drunk at closing time. He then completely fucks up, taking a sunset flip, ends up losing his bounce and sitting on Gomez before Gomez is able to flip him around. Uh, Mongo then catches Gomez out of nowhere into a tombstone pile driver, which he delivers away from the hard cam rather than in front of it for the pinfall win in six minutes, 44. Yes, this went longer than DDP with Jim, than uh, DDP and Jim Duggan. Um, so I don't know why they didn't pair him up with a veteran who can look after him, why they didn't make this shorter, and why they didn't give him a less dangerous finisher than the fucking tombstone where you can drop someone on their head. But anyway, maybe the answer to all of that is because WCW, Rob. <laughs> that seems to be the answer to so many things, lads, doesn't it? Um, I've written two comments down when I was watching this uh, pay-per-view yesterday. I've written, first of all, with three question marks, how thin is this roster? Um, that the, these two are on a pay-per-view match. But subsequently, I've actually looked and seen that there's actually quite a few good matches that were on the main event and dark matches yes. uh, before this show, including the Steiners versus Harlem Heat, by the way. Um, but uh, aside from that, uh, the other thing I've written is easily the best thing about this match is Heenan riffing about the dog. So you've covered um, a couple <laughs> of the things that I've already picked up on. And you're certainly right about the idea that, yeah, if someone is brand new, you know, you, you, you absolutely give them someone that knows their way around, don't you? You know, that's how many yeah. for how many years have you seen like a, you know, someone like a Lance Storm or a hardcore Holly or whoever it might be, be, be someone that people take on early on, not just to give them someone credible to beat, but also that can look after them. William Regal, another one, you know, looking after Goldberg or whatever it might be and, you know, schooling Goldberg in that match, but but needing to do so and giving them something to learn about. Um, I'm never going to give them stick about what goes on in the ring. Um Joe Gomez and Steve McMichael have done way more in the ring than I have done or ever will. Not my position to, to slag off their wrestling. Um, it's clearly not good to the eye, um, but I blame whoever put them in that position. Yeah. Um, well, I don't blame the two lads themselves. No, I mean, but but you you make a very good point. I mean, I'm, you well, you've seen this, Rob, from when I've done pay per views with the I've done pod, your podcast with with the cameras on. I've got two old British wrestling posters from the eighties on my kitchen wall behind me where I'm sitting at the moment. Yeah, and on both of those both of those posters are four match um, cards. And on one poster, I, there's Steve Logan, who was a teenager from Birmingham, against a guy who never really did much on the TV called Eddie Wenzer, who was um, 
uh, like a grizzled 20-year veteran. And then on the other poster, you've got Ian McGregor, who is listed on the poster as the 18-year-old teenager just starting out. And his opponent is Cyanide Sid Cooper, who started probably 20 years before that bout happened and is a, a an established villain who everyone reacted to and B is someone who could wrestle anyone with his eyes shut and and that's where you've got the the veteran looking after the rookie and you had someone like Hugh Morris well the the, the dark match the opening dark match was Jim Powers v Hugh Morris now either of them could have looked after Mongo for that match quite I mean, if, uh, listen, whatever jo- whoever's listening to this, if they've done a job of work, on the first day they went to a company, they would have been given a sign to someone, probably, to look after them. Mm. Whether it's the first day on the building site, and then, you know, they, you get a you know, 47-year-old plasterer that's been doing it all his life to show you the, show you the ropes, or whether you're in an office, or whether, it doesn't matter where you work. If anyone's got some sense... They put you as someone that knows their way around the job and can educate you and you can learn from them. And as they always say, you only learn from you, – you never learn from anyone that's as good as you. You learn from people who are better than you. We do well, it at Hooks on, on the website, don't we? We do it all the time. Yeah, exactly. You're exactly We've got some right. great young writers coming through who want that first taste. They know they're wrestling. They've done their, their journalism degree. They need to get out there on the front line. And you could call the Hooked On website, you could call it the Sacred Heart of Wrestling website. And I hope someone gets that reference because it's one that's dear to my heart. But that's probably going to go down to to the uh, the whistles and the, the crickets. <laughs> Yeah, you've beaten me, I'm afraid. But in terms it's, of the it's actual, scrubs for the crying out loud. Oh, Why does okay. no one appreciate oh. my insider TV references? I hate you. I hate you. <laughs> well, I didn't get the reference, but I do appreciate the uh, the analogy, and, it, and you're absolutely right. And it's like, listen, I've been, you know, writing either for fun or semi-professionally or professionally for not far off of 20 years now. And I'm still miles away from being perfect. You know, I still learn things every single day. I always find a website that explains how to use a certain idiom or explains the difference between two different words that are similar but not quite the same. And you're always learning. And um, so anyone that's that's someone new that's coming up, as, as Liam says, on Hooked on Wrestling, we've got some great talents there, but they still need you know, someone, and I, I could be that kind of person every now and again, Liam will do it, Paul will do it, we need to every now and again take them to one side and go, that's not how you do an intro, that's not how you construct a sentence, but they'll learn and they'll move on, and that's why everyone does these kind of things, but they've got to be put with the right people, and it just, this is why I'm saying, I, I, it's so easy to go, oh, Mongo, he's shit, isn't he? And it's like, well, he wasn't very good, but I, I don't, but I feel really sorry, I've never met Stephen Michael, I don't know what he's like, but I feel sorry for Stephen Michael, because he was put in a position where a lot was expected. He was, he was meant to be a horseman, for God's sake. And the position in the horseman that he was essentially filling, if you go down the list of who he would have been over the years, he's essentially Barry Windham. Mm. You know, that's who he's following. He's following Ole Anderson and Barry Windham, essentially, in the role that he's in. And it's like, you can't follow that. Not if you've only been doing it for five minutes. And I understand why they did it, and I understand the, the cachet he had within American sport and all of that kind of stuff. But I've always felt kind of sorry for Mongo in the position he's been even put into. Poor Mongo. So um, I don't feel that sorry for him, but a bit. <laughs> okay. So the the fir- the first thing I wanted to think about when I watched this match was ha- exactly how many gifts 
did the Mongo Twitter That's account. Mongo. The weird, massive... That's our Mongo. That's our Mongo. Anyone who hasn't checked that, check it out. Basically, an account finds these classic in-ring gaffes of Mongos. And unfortunately, yes, there are a lot of them. And I'm wondering how many came from this match alone. Secondly, I'm, I'm going to offer a little bit of a defense of this match. Maybe not even a defense of it, but maybe an explanation as to why they felt they could do this thing that they fucked up. And yeah, you guys have come at it from the in-ring, the wrestler's wrestler approach. And from that approach, you guys are right. They have broken every every code, every rule about how you get things done, uh, about making sure inexperienced guys are looked after. From a storytelling standpoint, this match makes a little bit more sense. Uh, they they said on commentary as well that Joe Gomez is a, is a young guy who's got a bit of a connection to Mongo, and he was offended by what happened at the last pay-per-view, which is when Mongo turned on Kevin Green, the other football player, and joined the Horsemen. And you guys will know this as well as I do. This is a classic storytelling device uh, when you mint a bad guy you freshly turn him into a villain you obviously want them to go on a bit of a run before they get vanquished otherwise what's the point and so if you're holding off the big climax with the person he's actually turned on and the big fish that they'll be hunting for as a villain the first thing you can feed them is you just get some random dude who's offended at what at what he's done you get them to shake their fist at him and, and get the hill to squash him so that's what joe goes he's shaking his fist at mongo you've disappointed me you've let me down and Mongo goes and gets his first singles win and yeah if there was any sort of wrestling ability or experience involved it would it would work on all basis just like the uh, DDP Duggan match did and that wasn't particularly amazing but it ticks all the boxes it need to and if someone had some sort of experience here I'm sure this might have stood a fighting chance as well but alas <laughs> yes but this alas. is a, uh, you, uh, Storytelling wise, you're absolutely right. Everything you said there is absolutely right. But as Dean said, you know, you've got, you know, Jim Powers and Hugh Morris working dark matches. You probably can't do it with Morris because he's in the Dungeon of Doom and you can't have a heel. But, you know, you've got, you've still got people in the company that were being used on Raw, used on Raw, used on Nitro. Well, that like that would have caused a lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> you've got people like Greg Valentine. That you could have used, but that, that is know, true because the like, the whole the whole aspect of the trope I just described, most people they, they they pick someone completely random to shake their fist. They've decided to do the tie, and they they commentary reference there is a tie between Gomez and Mongo. Fair enough, there's a bit more continuity, but yeah, most people just pick a random like a hacksaw Jim Duggan. They have Hacksaw come out and say, yeah, what you do is disgrace. I'm a huge football fan. Why'd you do that? Boom. Hacksaw Jim, Jim Duggan does a hoe, does a tackle, uh, gets beaten up. Ugh. That, and that would have made, that would have made just as much sense, and that yeah. would have been safer to yeah. You know, I'd to, have to, to I, I, I agree. With you. I would have sacrificed the the thread of continuity that they had in favour of making up the storyline bit and just randomly having someone get offended. I think that would have made more sense, and that's why I said it wasn't necessarily a defence, but that that was their that was their frame of thinking. It's an explanation, definitely not an excuse, if that makes sense. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. Okay, so next up, Mean Gene is backstage again with Ric Flair, Elizabeth, and Woman. 
Not much to be uh, to be said about the actual interview. It's just a typical Ric Flair interview hyping up his match next with Conan. Except but, for him singing La Cucaracha, you mean? Apart from him singing La Cucaracha. Because it was a... Different time. Yeah. Yeah. But what I do want to bring attention to, and we have mentioned this a couple of times briefly yes. in um, Nitro watch-alongs, but this is uh, this is the best example of, of it ever. Woman is just absolutely tremendous in her role barely saying a word but just flirting and distracting mean gene she never takes her hands off him she's stroking his shoulder she's stroking his chest she's turning his head around and stroking his chin and jim he's basically as well as as trying to uh, play his character he's also desperately trying not to crack up laughing but just the way she acts in this, and we'll see in the match as well, the way she acts in the match. I I think if if she didn't have the surname Benoit, she would be in the Hall of Fame by now because she is absolutely tremendous in her role. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I was praising Gene earlier. He he was a supporting player in this particular one, but he he's going move for move with her. The, these two had such good chemistry, mm. and there is something about the way they're doing the characters. These guys here, I'm going to mention it because we'll see it more in uh, the match itself. But there is there is something about the way uh, Flair and that are quote unquote healing it up for me. Well, we will uh, we'll get on to the match and we'll see exactly what happens in this match. It is the WWE United States heavyweight title. Conan defending against Ric Flair. And this really is quite the meeting of what you could call uh, wrestling cultural heroes in Mexico and the USA, respectively. Um, Shivani says on commentary that winning the United States title will get Flair a step closer to getting another shot at the world title. And this goes back to something we were saying about before in a previous podcast, Liam, that the U.S. title seemed to go between being a meaningless, weird title because we had this. We've we've just come out of this era with Kensuke Sasaki and One Man Gang, and then Conan winning it, and now we're getting on to Ric Flair challenging for it, which obviously is a totally different level. Yeah, it really is random with with WCW. I suppose it's worth noting that they they usually have the TV title, the cruiserweight title, so they don't have the ability to put focus on a secondary title like some places do. And this is also why those other places, when they talk about having extra titles, the fact that the diehard fan base usually collectively yelps and says don't add more titles because they don't want to see stuff like this. And and New Japan, as good as New Japan is, is having that problem with so many titles at the moment. Definitely. Um, so, potential spoiler warning, Ric Flair is wearing red and regular <laughs> listeners to this podcast will know that usually means he's losing. So let's see how these contrasting styles blend into a match. Um, there's also a huge contrasting style throughout this match between the ringside manner of Woman and Elizabeth. Um, Conan is trying to get the crowd behind him, but he gets a few boos and zero cheers. The crowd basically does not want to boo Ric Flair. Um, Flair takes his usual high backdrop out of the corner, which Conan then links into a surfboard submission, but he can't get Flair up in the air. So instead, he puts his foot into Flair's back to act as a lever point. Um, later, both men tumble to the floor over the top rope from a 
clothesline. Conan then jumps onto Flair and accidentally knocks out, knocks down, I should say, Elizabeth, who's clearly in the wrong place. Um, but Woman then turns the tide by shaking the ropes as Conan goes to dive off the top rope while Elizabeth is with Flair. While Flair is being admonished by the ref for poking Conan in the eyes a little later on, Woman enters the ring and blatantly low blows Conan. And this illegal blow gets a huge cheer from the crowd. Uh, for the third match in a row, a submission attempt is counted with a small package for a two count. Conan then clamps on a figure four of his own onto Flair, who eventually gets to the ropes. A modified bulldog gets Conan a two count. And Woman is screaming at Flair at this point, where she has been throughout the whole match, basically. Um, Conan puts Flair in an abdominal stretch and rolls him over onto his shoulders. But Elizabeth is up on the apron, distracting referee Nick Patrick. Meanwhile, Woman gets up onto the apron and removes her shoe after a prolonged wait Conan is finally put into the vicinity of woman she clocks him with the heel of her shoe and he drops like a stone because of course as Hulk Hogan showed us in the previous Nitro the deadliest weapon in wrestling in 1996 was a stiletto shoe um, Flair makes the cover with his feet on the top rope for good measure and wins the title even though he's wearing red in 15 minutes 39 seconds and the dirtiest player in the game and my goodness did he live up to that name on this match he is the new united states champion liam how did you find this one? Oh, oh yeah i'm sorry um sorry i should ask rob first it's, it's up to you i wasn't expecting that but yeah rob what did you make of this one we're going to, we'll, we always ask the guests first how how remiss of me i was just wondering what liam would think of it <laughs> Liam, what do you make of this? And let's go I, to you I first. feel duty bound now, and I'm also I was going to try and edit this out, but now nah, sod it. Uh, we're getting to that point. We're now that we're at how many episodes are we at? Sixty-nine. Nice. Um, now that we're that many episodes, we're getting to the point where we're really not too worried about having a super polished product as long as everyone enjoys what we have to say. That's debatable, but we're just going to pretend that they definitely are. Uh, we'll just roll with this, and yeah, sure, I'll give my opinion because I've got a few about this. I really enjoyed this. It was a very, it was entertaining enough. Uh, the wrestling parts they, they they slowed down enough so there wasn't too many ugly clashes. Uh, I did appreciate little things like Conan adapting the moves he couldn't do on Flair, where it was a bit of a clash there. So shame commentary wasn't in a intellectual position to pick up on like adapting the surfboard and things like that but the most interesting yeah. part of this for me was that rick flair you know he's been a dastardly hill for for a long stretch in wcw ever since he turned hill for the sake of putting hulk hogan over on his on his debut two years ago he's been dastardly the stuff he's done to randy savage the stuff the horsemen have perpetrated on nitro and things like that you know the thing he did to sting he's been dastardly this match is not like that yeah he's cheating but this this is eddie guerrero in the early mid uh, 2000s mm. cheating this is uh look at that rascal up to his old tricks cheating this isn't that bastard cheating so I think this was deliberate because they know they've got the bigger threat looming over. And they've already turned Luger babyface. And it was before the feud with the Outsiders. But it's still it's slotted into place. And now they're prepping one of their biggest heels to be someone that people would celebrate uh, uh, cheating like this. And just the, the performance was amazing. And 
yeah, you mentioned earlier woman. She's just just so freely, gloriously cheap, just loving every second of it. And although we've spoken about apprenticeships on this uh, show and inexperience and, 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 and things like that, and they've got the roles right. Uh, the, the one who can't do cheating, as we've seen from Nitro, when she couldn't even put a pair of handcuffs on Hulk Hogan in Miss Elizabeth, uh, is just designated to be the lookout who distracts a referee. And meanwhile, woman goes and gloriously does all the cheating. But the best part, the cherry on the cake, is right at the end of this match. As you said, he the uh, the stiletto gets the shot in. Uh, he does the cover. He puts two feet on the ropes anyway, which is glorious. But just to make sure, did you guys notice, he thumbs Conan's eye after the free count. I didn't notice that, no. He put his feet on the ropes on someone who's out cold and then thumbs him in the eye. <laughs> I was on the floor. <laughs> that is how you turn someone babyface by cheating. It, it was that mesmerizing. That is tremendous. Rob, your thoughts on this one? I certainly echo everything both as you said about uh, <laughs> about woman and the contrast to Liz. Um, you'll see in the coming months after this that uh, the transition of Liz being a sort of reluctant member of the NWO. If Liz is supposed to be a heel, that's her better heel role. You know, when Randy Savage was a heel and she was with him, you know, that she still had sort of virtuous qualities. I don't think it really works, this Miss Elizabeth character of spending Randy Savage's money and being complicit with Flair. A, because it doesn't fit her character, and B, because she, she doesn't have the range. There's a point in that interview before the match where Mean Jean goes to her, and she sort of goes, oh, uh, I didn't know it. I didn't know he was going to come to me. And she sort of says one line and gets on with it. She's a very bad improv um, mm. actor. Um, woman, however, does everything amazingly, from flirting with Mean Jean to the line she says to screaming at ringside. I remember during this match what going, that's... That is getting on my nerves, her screaming and yelling and screeching. But, of course, that's what she's meant to do. So I'm not yeah. knocking her for it. It's a, it's, a, it's a brilliant act. And she definitely has that sort of um, smouldering thing going on that uh, um, would, would rather conflict you as a male viewer. That I'm supposed to hate her, but at the same time... <laughs> mm. I, I wasn't anyway. conflicted. There was no... I knew exactly how I felt. Well, <laughs> I can understand oh, how someone would be. But... Uh, yes. Uh, moving on from uh, from that dynamic, which is, is there for all to see, um, to Conan. Um, first of all, the gear he was wearing, which appeared to have some sort of um, curtain pelmet on the bottom of it. Um, I'm not quite sure what was going on there. Um, people will have a little dig at certain things in WWE about them being, you know, anal about stuff like uh, Triple H not being able to look bad in magazine pictures or on the front cover of the video game or something like that. But sometimes there's a reason for them being so anal and things like that. And Conan would have got to gorilla position on that night and Vince would have gone, get changed. <laughs> Vince would not have let him go out like that. The same as John Tenter earlier on. He looked ridiculous. Mm. Um, I, th I think there's a thing with Conan that he's a little bit like... Conan in WCW is... He is the movie that has won some Oscars that you haven't seen yet. You know, every year there's a movie that wins a bunch of Oscars and you go, I'm going to see this. And you watch it and go, well, it was all right. But you're expecting this out of this world classic. And then you watch, I don't know, The English Patient or something and go, it's OK. And I just think because you hear that Conan's the biggest star in Mexico and this amazing draw and everyone knows him and whatever. 
And I just think he's all right. Every time I've ever seen him wrestle, I think he's fine. I don't think he's bad. I don't think he's terrible. He deserves to have a job. He deserves to you know, be on the roster. But I just don't really get it. I don't really get why he's a star. And it might be because I'm an Englishman and not a Mexican. And it might be the same reason why... Has there ever really been anybody that's been a massive megastar number one in their country and gone to another country and done it? I'm not sure there is. Whether it's Japanese wrestlers like Nakamura coming over to America or or whatever it might be. The closest, actually, might be Hogan's relative success in Japan. But or, generally or speaking, Rey it Mysterio, doesn't happen. Maybe. Mysterio, possibly, but Mysterio wasn't the biggest star in Mexico, no, was he? No, he wasn't, no. You know, he's a, he's a young lad showing some potential. Actually, Rey Mysterio has made his stardom in North America. Yeah. He didn't come from being a top guy in uh, in, in, in Mexico. Yeah. Um, but, you know, th- that aside, you know, I, I think it must be an absolute... It must be such a beautiful thing for someone like Conan at that position in your career when you're trying to get over with the North American crowd or be put into a position where you can do something to be able to work with someone like Ric Flair because there's lots of column inches been written about Flair over the years and goodness knows on 68 of your previous podcasts you've probably talked about Flair on 65 of them because he's so prevalent in this company all the way through and so most of it will have been done to death. But the bit I'd like to add in or at least reiterate is that Ric Flair was so giving uh, as a performer, you know, in terms of discussions about who's the greatest of all time and about what their matches were like and whatever, we could go down various other tangents, which I won't do today. But if you just watch this match, this is, this match is all about Conan. It's all about how, what Conan, the storyline wise, kayfabe wise, it's about what Conan brings to this match, what he tries to do, what he tries to dictate, what it means to him. And Flair is so unselfish. He lets all that happen. You're right, uh, Liam, in what you say. And what ends up happening is it becomes about flair to the viewer because he's so darn good and, and all the little bits of cheating and the little bits of character work. Because, frankly, he's so much better than Conan. It becomes about flair. But I, I really respect what Rick would do, which is to sell his ass off and try and work the match around his opponent. I'll follow you, despite the fact that he's, you know, as respected a wrestler as there has ever been, he would still take someone and go, I'll follow you. And I think that's that's really a really cool thing about Ric Flair, which I think is often a little bit overlooked. Yeah, it's a really good point. Really good point indeed. Um, and because you often think with Flair, you know, he can uh, he can adapt to different styles because he's used to being the traveling world champion and going around the world and facing different people and sometimes having to get a you know a sixty minute match out of a broomstick, which obviously he doesn't need to do it here but yeah absolutely he he is able to adapt to whatever circumstances and and when he's working against someone who is as experienced as conan then then you can leave that yeah leave that with with him um, Put it this way if you if you had a, a local comedy club near you right so you went there every week and the host was the same guy every week and he might not be known worldwide but locally to you he's the host he's the guy you see every week and if you booked a big comedian to come down and do the headline set that week, the comedian could come in and rip the piss out of the normal host and be a big star. What Ric Flair would do is come in and do a little sketch with the regular host and make him look even better. And you'd mm. walk away thinking the world of the both of them yeah. rather than thinking, oh, that big star who came in was a star. You know, because that, that was his job for so many years to go around America. But his job was not to turn up and be Ric Flair, be a megastar, and then bugger off. His job was to leave you thinking that that hometown babyface hero should be world champion. Yes, 
Absolutely. That was his job, and he knew his job. It was never about him, because if you're a heel champion, it's not about you. And there's what there is not a film. Well, actually, there probably is a film called Lex Luthor. But generally speaking, the films are called Batman and Superman and Spider-Man and whatever. They're not named after the. Yeah, I know there's Lex Luthor. I know there's the Joker. There are the odd one that's named after the the, the villain. But they're all James Bond films. They're not Scaramanga films and Blofeld films and yeah. Pussy Galore films. Although Pussy Galore films are available in certain quarters. But generally speaking, the the, the show is about the hero. And Ric Flair was always the the, the baddie, so he made it about the hero. And that's just not focused on enough about how good he was at that. Definitely. Okay, we um, we then have the uh, the Mean Gene skit backstage that we've already talked about, where he's outside the outside his dressing room. (laughs) My bad. Uh, um, but but it's yeah re- what you said earlier, Lim. Really good points, you know, especially where it's a familiar voice. Something's ringing in his subconscious and he can't place it. We then get to uh, the final match of the undercard, which is uh, the Horseman against the Dungeon of Doom. Um, it is Arn Anson and Chris Benoit against Kevin Sullivan and the Giant. Um, so the fight begins in the aisle as the Dungeon of Doom jump the Horseman. Michael comes out, clobbers Giant in the bat with the briefcase. The giant then chases after him at Michael, which leaves Sullivan on his own in a two-on-one situation. Um, giant returns about a minute or so later with Jimmy Hart in tow. Sullivan and Benoit are fighting on the mat, going for each other's eyes like an old-school shoot fight. Um, the horsemen are isolating Sullivan as they obviously don't want the giant in there. Um, Anson goes to suplex Sullivan near the ropes and Giant runs along the apron and levels uh, Anderson with an almighty clothesline. Um, however, Anson still manages to tag out to Benoit and they continue to isolate Sullivan. Despite his best attempt, Sullivan can't get out of there. The horsemen are working well as a unit to keep him in there. Sullivan goes, sorry, Anson goes to pile drive Sullivan who reverses it and catapults Anson in the corner when he's just about gets up to collide with Benoit who is standing on the top rope at the time. Um, and Sullivan back suplex Anderson, and finally he's able to tag in the giant. Benoit and Sullivan go off brawling into the set on the ramp, while Anson is left to deal with the giant. The dreaded split screen comes back. Um, Benoit and Sullivan are brawling at the broadcast position, while giant chokeslams Anson in the ring for a pinfall victory in 7 minutes, 59 seconds. Uh, Benoit and Sullivan continue their brawl post-match, covered in sand from the beach set. The giant walks off to the back. Sullivan is left back in a two-on-one situation. Woman comes down to the ring, screaming at Benoit to stop before she hurts Sullivan, before he hurts Sullivan, rather, um, which is very weird to watch in hindsight. Um, The giant then returns to the ring, chases Benoit and Woman out of the ring, and carries Sullivan off as the commentators try to figure out why Woman was bothered about Sullivan's welfare. Rob, what are your thoughts on this tag match? I'll start with the aftermath and say that I've always hated stories that are along those lines that do that little, you know, wink to the fans that are supposed to know that Kevin Sullivan and Nancy Sullivan are married or I forget who was with who at this point, but you're meant to know that Kevin Sullivan was the booker and you're meant to know that he's an item with Nancy, even though she's called woman is with Ben. Well, I, I just, I always hated that kind of thing, whether it was, you know, Pillman wrestling with a pencil or whether it was these two doing this or anything to do with Triple H and Stephanie when they had, when they were not a real couple, but they were a real couple. I ate it. It's, it's, it's unnecessarily. You can just, you can tell a good story without doing all that. Um, as far as the match itself goes, um, I, I, I was, I chuckled at a line 
from the commentary team, Tony Schiavone, uh, there was some action going on. And while the seven foot four giant was in the ring, Tony did go, this proves this is where the big boys play. But he didn't mention the fact that the four foot eight Sullivan and the monster Benoit <laughs> at five foot ten um, were also brawling at the same time. Um, but uh, I don't want to get too deep into it because we could go off on, an, on another one. But I've just I've never got Kevin Sullivan. He's always one of those ones that I've watched and just thought to me, Kevin Sullivan should be rock star spud. You know, he should be Bobby yeah. Heenan. He should be, he's a manager. He's, Dean, he's you, right? With the greatest of respect, you don't look like a wrestler and you're not supposed to look like it. No, but you don't. Yes. And I you're don't, not supposed no. to. But that's your job is to not look. Who is it that said wrestle like a wrestle like a manager and manage like a wrestler? Mm. But it's like, it's not your job to. So when you're in the ring and when you have had matches over the years and your 97 concussions or whatever it is you've had, um, I know you can't remember because you've had too many, but... Um, you're not supposed to look like a wrestler. That's not your job. Yeah. And whenever I've seen Sullivan over the years, I've always thought he's brilliant as a sort of cult leader. And you go way back to all those old clips and he's in, he's showing you the purple haze who's rising out of the water and he's doing all these demonic things and drawing on his head and introducing the dungeon and whatever. God, he's great. And he's got the, you know, doing the whole slaughterhouse thing. He's so good at it. He's such a good talker, but he goes in the ring and it's like, is he not just a little fat bloke? And it's like, and I just, I hate being the guy that goes, oh, he just looks little. But, you know, Daniel Bryan looks like he could hurt you. Chris Benoit looks like he could hurt you. Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels look like they could outwork you or do whatever. Rey Mysterio looks like he could flip around. Sullivan just doesn't. Sullivan looks like the mouthy guy in the pub that gets beaten up every Friday night to me. Although I, I've it, never, I would say to you, I've uh, never go, got it. I would, I mean, I get where you're coming from. Although I would also say to you, have a look at the angle he did in Smoky Mountain Wrestling with, with a, a poor Japanese fellow called Yukihiro Kanemura. Um, that might change your mind slightly, but I do, I do agree. He is a much better manager than, than wrestler to me. Yeah. So I think, I think it's to be fair. I often find that I look at someone in my vision of them or my observation of them doesn't always tally with someone else to flip it. And to go away from it being a little guy, I have the same thing with Brian Cage, who has just gone from Impact Wrestling to AEW. And I just think he looks ludicrous. He looks like he's in one of those blow-up suits to me, that is, someone's inflated him with some helium. I just, he just doesn't look, he just looks ridiculous. Doesn't look like he could hurt anyone. He's just like a muscle guy that can barely move. Well, and it's, it's not like, helium, but yeah. <laughs> well, okay, whatever, yeah. whatever it is, but. Um, I just look at him and go, well, why isn't everyone just laughing at him? Why aren't you pointing and laughing at him? And and I have the same sort of thing with Sullivan. I just go, well, would anyone take him seriously? This, yeah. If he wasn't booking the show, would he really have got that role? Yeah. Okay, Liam, what were your thoughts on this one? So the, the match itself I really liked. I thought it was a refreshing take on your vanilla tag team formula. And it played into everything that Rob listed that he doesn't like about Sullivan. They are, they're even the pre-match interview, they're saying, is Kevin Sullivan a weak link? Is the, is the, uh, the mastermind who gets bounced around by Hulk Hogan and his friends really the right person to be tag-teaming against the Horseman? And will the Giant, who obviously at this point is the world champion, is in great shape. He's shown what he can do. He's taken to this industry like a duck to water. He's absolutely incredible. And they're like, is he going to have to do the work of two men? They're playing into that. And the horseman, 
hatch a nefarious scheme. They get the giant away and they force Kevin Sullivan to be the legal man to the start. And it's very obvious, and I even touch upon it on commentary, that their game plan is to make sure there is no tag at all. They want Sullivan to operate the whole match because he is what Rob said he is. And the giant is awesome. And they're playing into that, and I liked it for that, because every gripe Rob listed is is real, is is fair, is understandable. And so if the content, if what we're seeing in front of us on the screen plays into that, we can actually get into it a little bit. And it's pretty good. And then the giant gets the tag, and he cleans house. And I know Anderson and Benoit aren't scrubs or anything, but because the giant is at such a level and you know we we've just done a nitro watch along where he wipes through rick flair but doesn't win the title he's soon going to have another match where he wipes through rick flair and does win the title clean as a whistle if i remember correctly uh he's been put at that at that level he can absolutely do that so it's not a detriment to benoit and anson that their game plan was their game plan for a reason as soon as a giant gets in, they could be in trouble. So I love that the storytelling was absolutely spot on. And as you guys already said, the post-match stuff, it just fell off a cliff. All show long, I've been saying, use that crowd as a barometer. That crowd has been pretty healthy on this show. Pop in for stuff that's done well. Not necessarily by the guys who are great. Not necessarily by the guys who are rubbish. But, but if it's done well, they'll react to it. And that post-match stuff just ruined it. And it really hammered home. Think of how good woman was in that Ric Flair match. And think of the stuff they've got to do in here. You're seeing the best of her and the worst of her, unfortunately. So it's such a shame they had to do this work shoot bollocks. Because Rob's right. What What's the point? Mm. Definitely. Yeah, that's just, just it's, it's just never drawn any money. There's just no experience of no. no. There's well, it just hasn't. There's there's just absolutely nowhere where that's there's a proven um, track record of that sort of thing doing well. I yeah. would understand. I sort of understand people twenty years later still going back to the heel authority figure because you know because Mr. McMahon worked and because Eric Bischoff worked, but. You know, there's other things where people just keep going back to the well and it's not really there. Just to clarify some of my Sullivan comments, my point was more of a broader one than this particular match. You're right, the story of the match is, is well done um, in terms of him being the smaller guy. Um, my issue is really his portrayal of that person was that, if you recall, there's a sort of slightly similar um, story told when you did something along the lines of Undertaker and Big Show versus Kane and X-Puck. You know, is, K- yes. is X part the little guy, the, the, the weak link? Well, he was a scrappy little baby face. Whereas Kevin Sullivan is a heel here. Well, I suppose they're all heels, aren't they? Because it's the, the horseman and the yeah. dungeon, which is also a bit weird. But, you know, Sullivan is not meant to be a virtuous underdog he, um, baby face character. He's meant to be a heel. So to me, he should be, like I said, he should be rock star spud. He should be thinking that he's up to the fight. Um, but being ludicrous, whereas actually he talks like he's six foot five and he should be in a, in a real serious overtone, where actually it should be a little bit over the top, almost played for laughs. To be fair, so the scrappy so obvious. <laughs> yeah, well, well, but again, but no one takes scrappy really seriously either. Do you know what I mean? It's like, that's what exactly what he should be. He should be scrappy do who people go, yeah, okay, mate. And he's not, he's sort of, it's a sort of halfway house that to me has never really quite worked. And like I say, I think if he had not had influence inside booking circles, I don't think anyone would have, 
I think he saw himself differently to anyone else saw him, is what I'm kind of getting at. Yeah, I think you take the post-match away from this, and that's exactly how it's done, because you've got to say, even though uh, Sullivan and the Giant got the win, uh, it's kind of been proven right. He is the weak link. They targeted him. They were doing well. The uh, horseman got in the ring with Giant, and they got swept out of there. So it kind of, you know, he he didn't come out of that lane until the post-match, which we've all kind of agreed is it was just ridiculous but uh, one thing we always sound because WCW is that unless Kevin Sullivan is dressed as an old woman or an extra from Baywatch he's not reaching his full potential we're not interested (laughs) we're not interested no okay it is then I should say very quickly sorry Dean just just to just cut off one more time it is is worth just saying because I I feel I ought to say it Um, you know you've got the the world champion in this match uh, and he's going to go on to do things with Hogan, who's the biggest star in the company, and so forth. This, this is actually good. It's good booking and um, and sensible play of the champion, who is in a heel group but is not a heel. And if you go back to the the the, the little four way before the um, earlier in the show with Sullivan and with Mean Gene and with Jimmy Hart, you know, the, of those, you know, in that interview, the Giant basically gives a babyface promo. You know, and, and it's a very straight up, I'm the champion, I'm going to kick some ass. And his character, much like we said about the, the Lesnar Malenko thing earlier, is quite true. He doesn't do anything really, really nasty, the giant, even though he's a heel. It makes it easier for him to turn babyface. And of course, this would be the start of 20 odd years of him turning babyface and heel 17 times a year, oh, which yes. made it quite hard to keep up. But in its essence, at this um, embryonic stage, is good booking of of a heel champion that is clearly going to turn babyface soon. Yeah. Okay, it is then time for our main event. So we take a look at the special video package um, with more awful generic music, which summarizes the hostile takeover so far with Hall turning up on Nitro, followed by Nash a few weeks later, followed by Bischoff taking that powerbomb off the stage. Now, Liam, got to ask a question here because, again, it's something that they don't really say much about. Was there any kind of stipulation to this match? Like, you know, did did the outsiders have to leave if they lost? Was because the commentators keep talking about how the future of WCW is at stake, but they don't really go into any more depth than that. Yeah, and to that extent, it might come across a little bit as hyperbole. But I've got to be honest, I kind of appreciate the fact that everyone was selling it like these these outsiders that were coming declared war. They're setting the, the table for one big main event match, your guys versus our best guys, and they are selling it like if they lose this match, it's just going to do irreparable damage to the company. And I can appreciate the gravitas they're placing on that without stipulations. So I suppose it's a half-empty, half-full thing. But one okay. thing I think we can all agree on is during that package... Which is, you know, you by this point in the show, you the tension's going. They've really done a good job of building up. You you're getting into it. Everyone's hyping it up. And then you look at this video package, which does a good job of detailing it. But you look at those really poor attempts at fake press cuttings that show up with headlines on them, and it just takes you out of it. Maybe it's just uh, me who's paying attention to them. No one else will give a blind bit of notice. But I don't blame you. I, you did yourself a favour. I, I I just thought they might. Have... I, do you know what? I suppose watching that back, I just thought, oh, that's going to be from like sheets and that. But then thinking about it, no, there's no way in the world. Yeah, there's no way in the world that they would uh, be quoting things like uh, pro wrestling torture yeah. and something. They yeah. are they are Leslie Nope level headlines. And yes, that's another obscure TV crossover reference. 
Excellent. So we have match number nine. Main event is the Outsiders, Hall and Nash and their mystery partner versus Sting Luger and Savage. Uh, so Michael Buffer is a ring announcer. He explains that a lottery was held and that Sting, Luger and Savage were selected, apparently, <laughs> to defend the honour of WCW. Good job they didn't draw out Craig Pittman and the State Patrol, I suppose. Can you imagine? Uh, it's like, do you remember that that episode of um of was it Nitro where they did a um a fan vote on who and it was basically Flair v Sting and it it was you had yeah. like you had the option of like Sting or two schlubs that you'd never seen before in your life. Yeah. And... Why even say lottery? What have you got to gain from saying it was a lottery? Just say we're gonna pick our best troops. So yeah, which is which, which is what. Which was what the entire build-up was. So yeah. I don't know where Buffer got that from. Um, so the commentators seem psyched for this one. And, and as I said earlier, they've they've done a great job of building this one up. And even right now, even Heenan and Shivani seem united on this one. And I suppose that makes sense because even if they have their differences, if this is you know the future of WCW at stake, if if the outsiders win, they could then bring in their own commentators, and those and both those guys are out of a job. So it kind of makes sense. So um, Hall and Nash come down to the same uh, generic music stroke yes. um, in, instrumental version of uh, of Crazy by Seal. I did say ask if this was a network edit, but you're saying this was the music they came down to on the show. This is the music they came out to on the show, and for me. This is another one, those little touches that we see. You know, so, some of the things that those have done this show have made no sense, but there are certain things that have really hit good logical notes. And they are, they're the outsiders. They should be, in kayfabe terms, they should be lucky they get an entrance at all. Uh, and they're being brought out to the generic music of the pay-per-view. And it is a generic thing that they use for all their shows like that. This was par for the course in, in well, it still is to an extent in wrestling. Uh, and it is a rip-off of a, of, a, of a, you know, a nice but cheesy pop song to boot. And yet, as the, with the tension in the, 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 the great job they've built up with all the tension for this match, as Horn Nash saunter down for this unprecedented, uncharted match with an introduction from Buffer that's that's like nothing else he's ever given. Uh, and the commentators, you say everything about it, they're sauntering down. Suddenly, you start to hear the, the, the ominous nature of the riffs and the wows on the guitar. And they're walking. They just happen to be walking to the same pace of it. And now if you look on YouTube and search The Outsiders theme, it's generally consensus that this was their first theme, even though technically it's not. WCW's using the pay-per-view music to bring them out because they're outsiders. But this is recognised as their theme because they took this generic guff that was ripped off a seal. They have seal throwing lawsuits aplenty. They took it and they made it their own and they owned it. And I just always, I even just played the damn thing before we went on, just to get myself back psyched into it. It, it, just, it just took to it like glue. It's amazing. And one little thing I want to add, because this is this is only the sort of sad thing that only I would notice, I think, is if you think about the situation WCW found themselves in, where you know they've been circling the drain for a long time, looking for that cash cow, and they've got Nitro, Hulk Hogan's helping turn around a bit, but if they're ever going to beat... The, the WWE, they need it. They need something big, and we know that this situation is is leading to that. And the the thing that's been associated as the Outsiders theme, the thing it's been ripped off from, that's the actual song, 
the lyrics go something along the lines of, and we're never ever going to survive unless we get a little crazy. Mm-hmm. I just love that. Sorry. I'm probably the only you, person who dig that deep, but for me, it just comes to I was going to say, you've, you've gone deep there. You've gone yes, very I've deep. Yes, I've gone definitely. full meta. <laughs> okay, so Buffer apologizes. He says that uh, there's only two of them, not three, um, while the commentators are all, all universally up in arms demanding to know who the third man is now. Um, so remember, this was Hall and Nash's first match in WCW since they signed from... WWF, of course, they were in WCW before as the Diamond Stud and Vinny Vegas and Oz, respectively. Um, they're getting a mix of boos and cheers from the crowd, but everyone is reacting to them. Um, there's visible security at ringside. They're keeping an eye on the crowd. This this all feels properly intense. Um, mean Gene then comes down and gets into the ring and talks with Buffer, then takes the microphone, confronts the outsiders to ask who the third man is. Hall refuses to divulge this, but they both confirm that their third man is here in the building right now, but that they can handle things between the two of them right now, which uh, such arrogance draws the ire of all of our commentators again. So the baby faces all come out together as a united force to Sting's entrance music. Um, Love that. I bet Macho Man was not happy with that decision. Um, it's that, so it's basically it's three on two with the advantage going to the baby faces, which is normally a cardinal sin when booking wrestling matches. Um, Heenan does actually speculate that Dusty could be the third man, and Shivani <laughs> then says he doesn't trust anyone right now. Um, it's but interesting to note that they barely even refer to Hall and Nash by name at all during the match, which must make commentating very difficult. And I, I don't know, I think this, again, we touched on it earlier, this must be because um, there were a lot of legal wranglings going on at this point in time and intellectual property and stuff. Um, so I, I think they, they'd sort of arrived at the decision to call them by their real names, but just in case things went differently, they, they were being a bit cautious. Um, I think I think they, from what I, because I thought very similar to you, I noticed it in the first five six minutes of watching this match back that they hadn't said their names at all. They're just yeah, the outsiders, Nash, and Nash the, the big, big the big guy, yeah, the big guy and whatever. And then about seven or eight minutes in, they do say Hall and Nash because I was it was tricking my head and I thought, oh, maybe they don't say it at all. Maybe it's the following night on Nitro that they start saying their names because I had I was familiar with with Mean Gene saying. What are you doing, Hulk Hogan, with this man Hall and this man Nash? I had that in my mind, but I thought, oh, maybe I've got the wrong um, promo for that or the wrong interview for that. But they did start saying it occasionally in the uh, in the actual yeah, commentary. But, but you're, even you're then, right; it was very, very tentative. But that's re- again, that's a real good nod to reality because maybe they weren't sure what to say. They weren't maybe you know their real life director was saying, don't recognize these people, don't give them the time of day, and give them don't give them the satisfaction of using their names. But you can imagine that happening in reality, couldn't you? So yeah, I think it's a, it's a nice last one. You summed it up when it, when Mean Gene says this man Hall and this man Nash there's a you know that's not very formal, is it? That's kind of gritted teeth. I thought the, yeah. the, the whole thing you can feel the transition and it gets to a point eventually where yeah we know their names, all right, we're used to it now, but it's it just it just makes everything feel so much more unsettled and unnatural. It's amazing. I don't think at any point they say Kevin or Scott. No, they don't. I think they just say National. They never later on, obviously on on shows they start to say Kevin National Scott Hall. But on this night, I don't think they ever say anything other than uh, the National Hall. And just a really quick one on 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 Buffer because you mentioned him earlier on. Um, I've always thought it's an interesting sort of 
double-edged sword about having him around because the, the way he would do the intros, the fact that he would only ever do the main event or the, only the important matches on the show, just lent such an air of, you know, obviously WWE have had Finkel, for, you know, did have Finkel for so many years. It was part of the WWE or WWF, but Buffer added something different from, you know, from Gary Capetta and from Dave Penzer. And obviously you knew him from boxing. He had his catchphrase. The trouble is they let him do a wee bit too much, didn't they? So talk what you were saying about, about the lottery thing. Because clearly that's scripted, you know, and he's reading off a card because he knows bugger all. And it's actually, if they'd have just kept him really, really simple, just announce the people and do the, you know, the full-on Hulk Hogan thing, rather than giving this description beforehand. I, I almost felt they slightly misused him, other than, of course, they should have done a Piper's Pit-style thing with him called the Buffer Zone. <laughs> I did love the uh, the apology, though, for there's only two men out. I thought we nailed that. But yeah, otherwise, yeah. No, that's great. we discuss great. Buffer a lot here. De- Dean's never been a huge fan. I can, I think I can count on one hand the amount of times I've really appreciated his contributions, but I'm a little less harsh on him than Buffer than uh, Dean is. So I will say on that, on that, sorry, one last thing. Sorry, Dean, I do apologise, mate. Um, but that that thing about the two on three is really interesting because everything you said there is absolutely right about how that would normally be. You know, the the baby faces would have one short, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the unbelievable thing about this, talk about the exception proving the rule, the commentary team are irate that the heels have won fewer than they should. Imagine starting a game of football and going, they've only got 10. That's not fair. But actually, within the world that we're talking about, it makes sense. Yeah, because they want to know who the other is. It's it's not illogical. It makes sense. So what an incredible vibe. They had created these two men, these two outsiders, thinking that... I know there's a bit on the Legends of Wrestling Roundtable that's on the WWE Network where they talk about this thing of these two guys with baseball bats are basically tougher than your entire company. And they, they did manage to do that. And actually, sometimes you say that's a bad thing, but on this occasion, it was a great thing because that's where the money was. The money was on these heels and to make them look strong and to build them all up and build them all up. And it's like, you know, um, it's just a tremendous, tremendous way of doing things. And Going back to your point about the, the commentary team hyping up what happens if we get beat, it happens throughout the match. In fact, right at the very end of the night after the turn, Bobby Heenan says, well, what happens to us now then? Or yeah. something like that. And I, I'm, I'm very, very tentative of what I'm about to say here because I don't want to offend anybody. So I'm just I'm talking through very, very young McNichols' eyes here. But it actually reminds me a little bit of when we used to do RE when I was at school. And your RE teacher would say, well, Jesus died on the cross for all of our sins and I'd go well, what does that mean well he died so we could all live and uh, but what does that to me that didn't make any sense and this whole thing of the heels winning that means the company's finished is that but that doesn't make any sense though but it only doesn't make any sense when you really really dig into it at the time you sort of go yeah it would be a disaster if they won wouldn't it and like I said, I'm not sure what there were any stipulations on the match or anything but it did just feel if these guys could just stroll in and win at will then it, that would yeah. be a terrible thing. They've done a brilliant job of that. I suppose it's it's the pride of WCW, isn't it? And and this and being a fan of of the company because I, th- I think what you got to remember is that they there were it, the the wrestling fandom at this time wasn't a massive Venn diagram. Or if it was a Venn diagram, there wasn't a huge amount in the middle. There were people 
who were WCW fans who did not watch or didn't care for WWF, you know, especially in the Carolinas area. And vice and, versa. And vice versa, of course, yeah. WCW, um, around this sort of time, I believe, they tried to do, they went up to the to do some shows in the Northeast. And they even when they brought in um, Bruno Sammartino and Pedro Morales as, as, as special guests, they drew poorly. Um, Hulk Hogan, when you, you know, when, whenever we've seen nitros from the Carolinas, babyface Hulk Hogan gets booed out the building. Booed out the building. Yeah. yeah. So it does happen. Anyway, back to the match. Nash holds uh, Luger's neck down over the turnbuckle, and Sting is unsighted. Comes in with a stinger splash, which sends Luger tumbling to the floor. And the commentators said, and we're told that Luger is out. Um, it's a bit hokey having this happen in the first minute of the match. Maybe they could have waited, but it now makes it two on two. However, I guess it does then make people speculate if Luger could actually be the third man and is playing possum because that actually was one of the original plans was have Luger turn, but then the decision was made to go with, with Hogan. And what did you um, say earlier, Dean, about thinking that the Luger babyface turn was a bit weird and a bit sudden? Indeed, so that was absolutely. a lot watching live. That's in the back of everyone's mind. Yeah. And this gets more ominous and more tense. It's incredible. Yeah, because we've we've been told we've been conditioned over the past few months of watching Nitro and pay per views that you you shouldn't trust Lex Luger definitely. Um, so the match is kind of paused while Luger's loaded onto uh, a stretcher and taken out of the match. Um, Sting is fired up. He unloads on Hall to a big crowd pop, but the heels are soon in charge, making frequent tags and isolating Sting. The commentators are encouraging the WCW guys to hurt their opponents, and it's a really unique feeling that they're creating here. Um, Sting is still being isolated by the heels as Savage is desperate to the, for the tag. Sting starts firing up on Nash and makes the hot tag to Savage. The crowd and the commentators explode as Savage comes off the top on the hall with an axe handle. Um, we have the weird dynamic of Heenan cheering on Savage. Um, Savage is taking over on both men until a low blow behind the referee's back drops Savage to the floor. Immediately after this, we hear another huge pop and the crowd are all turning towards the aisle because Hulk Hogan, who has been absent from our screens in WCW since April, turns up. Uh, the outsiders flee the ring, leaving just Savage in the ring, lying prone on the canvas. Hogan rips his T-shirt off and after being stale as a babyface at the end of 1995 and the start of 1996, at this moment in time, watching live, it seems that a short absence and the right situation has brought him right back, given this huge positive reaction he's getting from the crowd. But then without any warning, the unthinkable happens. Hogan led drop Savage and does it again just for good measure. Referee Randy Anderson has his head in his hands. Hall and Nash get back in the ring and high five with Hogan and Hulk Hogan is the third man. He's the voice that Mean Gene recognized but couldn't place. He's the man with the innate knowledge of the WWF and all of a sudden 
all of the background now makes sense. He throws Randy Anderson out of the ring and hits a third leg drop on Savage as Hall and Nash make the three count. There's no decision, and after the event, the match is ruled a no contest. Uh, the commentators are outraged as Heenan is saying, "What?" Say, sorry, Heenan says, "What have I been saying all these years about Hogan?" Because obviously he's never really been on Hogan's side. Um, the crowd are stunned. You can see some people are trying to process it. Some people are booing it. Some people are cheering it. Live, there are reports of people leaving in tears and throwing Hulk Hogan merch in the bin. That um, was given to them at the start of the show. Probably so that's a joke it. from the Nitros. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then something that had never happened before, at least in mainstream wrestling, to my knowledge, fans start throwing rubbish into the ring. Garbage for our American listeners. Um, Mean Gene gets into the ring and asks Hulk Hogan, what in the world are you thinking? And then Hogan starts to deliver the heel promo of his lifetime as more rubbish gets thrown into the ring and Hogan proclaims them to be the new world order of wrestling. He also calls them the new world organization a couple of times, but never mind. Um, he made, he made the people running the WWF rich. He's bored with being nice to people in WCW and tells all the fans to, quote, stick it, brother. Um, and a very somber Tony Schiavone closes the broadcast by saying that we have seen the end of Hulkamania and tells Hulk Hogan to go to hell, straight to hell. Um, sadly, the, ir- the irate fan running into the ring and getting the ever-loving crap stomped out of him has been edited out of the network broadcast, but it is on YouTube and it will always be in our hearts. So, what a main event. I mean, Iconic doesn't even begin to describe it. What were your thoughts on this one, Rob? I mean, crikey, there's just where to start here. Um, I'll try and avoid some of the talking points that I know I'm fairly certain you'll bring up. Um, on separate strands. Um, On a broader level, I will say that the last 40 minutes or so of this um, pay-per-view broadcast, uh, literally the very second after the previous match is finished, so everything in terms of the build-up of this um, is about as perfect as you're ever going to get. This is out of the the textbook, beautiful storytelling, clearly crafted a long way out, thought about in depth you know we've, we've barely touched on the fact that they did the little story about um where was bischoff and had he been kidnapped and, and whatever that will play in in the months to come um but it, it, it you know it fits in for now and it fits in later um, amazing continuity um i'm not a huge fan of mean gene oakland's time in wcw I think there are times where he went to business for himself. I think there are times where he played up silliness over serious storylines, but he's absolutely on the money all night here. Mm. Um, and you talked about the backstage thing earlier on, the interaction with Heenan, um, perfect. It, there is not a single person in the entire world that could have done that post-match interview. Not one. Yeah. At any time, at any place. And I don't care if it's someone that you think is a joke interviewer or is someone that's, you know, um, good in modern terms. Absolutely no one could have done that. It relied on the history of, of Hulk Hogan and, and Gene Oakland. And what WCW did to quite good effect around this time was they would occasionally let you know that they were perfectly aware of things that went on outside of WCW. They knew that the, the world did not exist 
uh, didn't only exist in their four walls. They were happy to let you know that they were they understood what the WWF was about. And indeed, in Hogan's promo, he talks about a great big organization up north. It's sensible to do that. You know, it's sensible to play into that perspective because that's what Hogan was all about. And I just think that moment where Oakland's in the ring and Bobby Heenan goes, look at Oakland, he's going to break up. Or he's, I forget what, what exactly the words are, but he, it's a great call from Heenan. Um, about you know, what it will mean to Mean Gene, and Mean Gene confronts them. It's all about the post-match. I mean, it, it's the match itself is fine. It's just there. I mean, it's all about the Hogan arrival and then the promo afterwards. Yeah. And I just think it's it's done about as perfect as as perfect can be. When we've talked about the announcers a lot during the night, we've not talked about Dusty Rhodes, who I always found quite comical on um, commentary for for a bad reason. I've always thought he was a terrible commentator and. Um, there is a moment in this one where he's basically a six-year-old child um, where I think Sting has a bit of a comeback and Dream goes, who'll be bad now? Who'll be bad now? Yeah. And, and yeah. Tony Schiavone goes, yes, that's right. And so, and so Dream says it five more times. <laughs> it's like, it's like when, when a child says a little joke and you laugh at him, he just keeps doing the joke over and over again. Um, but generally speaking, you know, they're on form, all of them, and they're questioning what's going to happen to them. And the point you've made all through this show about Heenan being the normal heel at other matches, but actually agreeing with Dusty and Tony here and being on WCW side, it does lend it that bit more gravitas. It's a little bit like, you know, when the leader of the opposition in the House of Commons agrees with the PM, you know, because it might yeah. just be something that's so serious, it's such a serious matter, that he's not going to go into the petty red v blue point scoring issue he's going to go yes. yeah this is such an important matter i agree with you and you know and that's the kind of thing he does i know you're going to get onto one particular line in a minute so i'll skirt around that um but generally speaking i just think this is one of the most brilliant um brilliant strategically put together formatted shows when it comes to one you know issue if you're a boxing fan i think you guys know a bit more about boxing than i do i'm not a big boxing guy but you know, if there is a big boxing card, you know, no one talks about the undercard of the Rumble in the Jungle, do they? Mm. Or the, the undercard of, you know, Pacquiao versus Mayweather or whatever. It's about the main event. And I know wrestling's different, and that's not necessarily, you know, what it comes to. And UFC have kind of had a, a bit of a balance in terms of that. But, you know, you can get away with Steve McMichael versus Joe Gomez. And you can get away with, you know, Duggan looking like an old man. Or you can get away with the stupidity of boss man and whatever because it's all about this main event and everything that went before it doesn't really matter this was so beautifully perfectly tremendously executed from a, a production standpoint not leaving any holes to pick through um and just having the focus on your big um your big story your big what's going on later on we would see a similar sort of thing where the focus was always on Hogan, always on mcmahon austin there were other things going on in, in, in the WWF, which, which worked. But there's a hell of, if you go and analyze 98 in, in WWF, there's a lot of shite in 1998. There's a lot that didn't work. There's a lot of bad characters, bad promos, bad telly. But, it, but Austin McMahon worked and it carried everything. Yeah. And on this particular night, the main reason for you being there, the hook pays off in such a good way. I think it's one of the most successful single evenings ever in professional wrestling from a creative standpoint. Yeah. Cause I mean, one, one thing we've, we've complained about on previous podcasts, Liam is, is how just you'd have a really good undercard and then you'd get these stale main events like Hogan V Piper or oh. Hogan V the butcher or whatever. And, 
And with this one, we've got a a genuinely new, fresh main event with two new, fresh guys who are bona fide superstars, main event level stars in the mix. Yeah, and I wouldn't even say it's a reverse of what we saw with other shows in that the undercard, you know, it's 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 throwaway. It's not amazing, but I actually enjoyed most of it. And as we went through it match by match, I think the consensus is if we use the, the scale we use on Nitro watch-alongs is pass-fail. And it's absolute, for me, it's absolutely a pass on that scale alone. Just how good it is, yeah, you'll find better. But there was enough enjoyment for me, especially considering the fact that it was interwoven with little things like Mean Gene and that, that built up to the main event as well. So the whole package I really appreciate. Um, one thing I wondered coming into this is, yeah, I'm sure it'll be a pretty quick question to answer because I really don't think there's too many others that can trouble it. Is this, you know, considering how much Smoz finishes and non-finishes can tend to ruin a lot of matches, is this the greatest non-finish in wrestling history? That's a good point. I can't think of a contender to, to rival it. it. Because no it's... one cares. Do you, do you know, I... I... I genuinely had to look up the result on Wikipedia because I never, it wasn't announced and I never remember what I didn't remember what the result was because the result is Hulk Hogan turns heel basically. And it's not like the Montreal screw job where you know what happened, but the official result is Shawn Michaels beat Bret Hart. Mm. And how Greek tragedy is it that WCW went into this thinking, at all costs, we have to bond together. We have to win this match. We cannot be beaten by these outsiders. And when all was said and done, <laughs> as it turns out, a defeat was the least of their worries. And that is why they had that threat. That is why they look so badass, even when they're outnumbered. Is it wasn't the baseball bats? It wasn't the the, the hubris. It wasn't the swagger. It was the fact that they always had some cards to play. And without going off on too much of a tangent, because it's 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 one for another day, but for me, that was always the beauty of it, is, is that the New World Order always had something up their sleeve. And then they got to a point when, when they got full power and they're, they're like taking over pay-per-views and shows and Bischoff is, is clearly in charge and he's with them. They've got all this. And people always complained about the New World Order swelling in numbers and getting all these schmucks joining them. For me, that was an essential part of the story. You get Because they should become the machine they pretty much take over the company they've got like 50 people in their organization all these foot soldiers and and it takes the value down but that's exactly what you want when you then have the ddps the stings uh, the horsemen start being the renegade badasses that they can be and start to invade the nwo's organization so for me that would have been the most beautiful way to do it but right here on on this night they're showing that it, it's about just having those cards and that's why they're so confident that they're two to three down and the luger thing just plays into their hands but the reason why they're happy to go two to three is because when they play this card they're pretty much gonna nuke the company and they did and i, yeah, and I a, don't think i don't think you could ever replicate this if I Again. if I see one match that can that can recreate this organic naturalistic tension and this sort of palpable atmosphere, if one match can really legit do that naturally for me in my lifetime, I'll be very grateful. Yeah, I mean, I think the nearest they've had a go at it, and I'm not saying it worked, 
But is the nearest they've had a go at it when Austin turned in the invasion? Mm. Oh, not, no not, one was buying the threat then. It's not as successful. But People were digging the Us versus Them. The buy rate showed that. They wanted that Us versus Them. They had a little bit of the... On the surface, it obviously had the those WF versus WCW thing that the NWO thing did have itself five years earlier. So people were digging it, but it didn't it didn't have that that sort of atmosphere tension. I mean, I, I, I wasn't I wasn't a proper fan watching live to watch Hogan Andre, but I think old, older guys older than the three of us have said that there was a legit feel about Hogan Andre, yeah. and obviously they had the benefit of having their previous matches uh, like five seven years ago scrubbed where they wouldn't have known it happened we, we yeah. that that goes against us now we know everything that's happening it's yeah. harder to, to put those curtains up but still yeah. i like to think we've got one shot of maybe getting something like this but it's unfortunately it's not going to come from wwe not to knock what they do it's just quite it's not in their business model it's not their business model to make moments like this on the creative front they will yeah, take they they, they think... are adam sandler they will take come uh, commercial big success, big money deals, and they'll have everyone critically pan them. They don't care. Yeah, because it's it's something that yeah we've always talked about with any kind of invasion angle, whether it be the WWF one, whether it be when the UWF Bill Watts UWF merged into the NWA, that the 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 bigger company don't ever want to look weak because. Yeah, it make well, it just makes their company of the week. So, so the UWF champions always lost to the to the NWA guys. The WCW guys always lost to the WWE guys post buyout. Here we are getting the the outsiders who are supposedly the WWF getting the better of WCW. But obviously, the reason that that is happening is because in reality they are WCW guys who have been signed to a contract, and so this whole thing is gonna is going to pan out over time. I mean, the, the closest thing I can think of that I've ever been involved with in Britain was when there was a show um, held between the... Uh, it was a, like an inter-promotional tournament between the FWA and IPW. And the FWA were like the big British independent company of the early noughties. And, um, the, and IPW were like the... the, the young upstart that had started in the second half of, of the noughties and, and then became a big company in the next decade. And the idea was that it was, it was there was a match, um, main event match between the respective champions and the losing promotion would fold. And people, and what was, what had actually happened in reality was that the FWA was, was shutting up shop, but it was not, it had been kept secret. So nobody knew it was going to happen and no one, and, and you actually had, they had an, like a football match. You had a section of seats for FWA fans and a section of seats for IPW fans. And, and you had this unique atmosphere and intrigue of people genuinely not knowing who was going to win. Um, and, and it's it's a sim, similarish thing to what you were saying, Liam, about this organic situation that just crop, crops up. Um, because you know, I was reading up about this they, they, to remind myself, and they said Hogan Hogan only had two more pay per views on his contract, and had he not turned heel, they'd basically run out of things to do for him, and he probably wouldn't have been renewed because they were doing reasonably okay without him. Yeah. 
So he knew to pull the trigger. I think it was 11 days before the show they made the decision. Yeah, Bischoff in his book and other guys, and you know, even some guys you wouldn't trust, but when they all come together and unanimously say that this is how it happened, you tend to give it a bit more credence, but they all said that he was he was holding out on Tony Hill, holding out on Tony Hill, and he, he, he finally made a decision that he'd go along with it. It was, as you said, it was like he realised that 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 was the last move left to play but it was yeah. a, it was an obvious one and it and it worked a charm and it's a shame he 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 didn't see where where the wind was blowing on the natural progression on the angle cuz you think of guys like Randy Orton right now in parlance Randy Orton will have a bit they'll always put him back in the main event they're just about to put him in the, in a big main event situation wouldn't surprise me if he ends up becoming the world champion very soon uh, depending yeah he might already be if i end up getting a bit of a delay in putting this up <laughs> um, uh, and then he'll go to a period where he loses like five times to jinder mahal as a baby face and there he'll just go and do his thing because he knows he's minted and he will go and do this thing and it will enable him to regroup and come back and it would have been so much better for wrestling as a whole if Hulk Hogan had just learned that one little thing, that nobody was going to forget about him if he went down to chief support or even up amid for just a a couple of pay-per-views. If he just had a tea break from hogging it all, uh, he could have kept bouncing back, kept bouncing back. Because as we've done these Nitro watch-alongs, we've covered his midlife crisis. We've covered the fact that it's obvious to Hogan and to everyone watching that his uh, importance to the company is waning as we're doing these late 95, 96 uh, watch-alongs. And that little break, he was gone for, well, as you said it was earlier, it was like a three-month breather. Yeah. And he realised he needed that. And if, if he'd have been a bit more tactical with it, you know, there, there could have been more longevity. Look at 2002. He yeah, well, strode into WWE also, and everyone loved him. Yeah, it was mainly also because he was making a film at that time. But um, <laughs> but, 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 the ev- but the evidence is there. You Sometimes yeah. you just got to take a beat. Randy Orton's the best example of that for me. The way he'll he'll drift in and out of the main event scene. He'll go and do something. Not to, you know, he's, he's not jerking the curtain or anything like that. He's normally in a pretty substantial upper mid-card feud. Yeah. at the time but he'll go and do that and then he'll be back and they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll just throw a new lick of paint on him so easily yeah okay now there's one thing I want to I don't want to spend too long on this because I do realise that this is like the longest paper, this the longest podcast we've bash at the beach at 96 baby I could have called this this deserves a bumper episode um, there's one thing that we haven't mentioned deliberately because it was I'm I'm absolutely positive it was originally edited out of the network version, or maybe it was edited out of DVDs or something. Because cowards. And now, but now it is back in. When Hogan comes out, and Shivani and Dusty are celebrating that Hulk Hogan has returned and is here to help the fight because Savage is out of commission and Luger's gone. And it's the one time in the match that Heenan uh, is is not on the same page as the others because he comes out with the line, but whose side is he on? And he says it again, and Shivani shuts him down and basically tells him not to be so stupid. I have long said 
that that was a bad thing to say, that it kind of foreshadowed what was going to happen and that Heenan shouldn't have said that because it kind of he should have been just as surprised as everybody else. Your view on this, Liam, is very different to mine. I know that. It is very different, and I'll make sure anyone who wants to know, I've written a piece about this very thing on hookedonwrestling.co.uk. We've got some great uh, close analysis of amazing moments like this. Hey, look who we've got on the show. Rob McNichols written the Barbershop Trilogy for us. Check that out as well. We love doing these sort of close analysis pieces, and this moment did deserve that sort of thing. So I want to start by saying, yes, Dean, you are right. A commentator did really spoiled the great atmosphere they'd picked up by something they blurted out during Hulk Hogan's entrance and I'm glad you agreed it was terrible that Tony Schiavone was heralding Hulk Hogan after saying at the start of this segment not to trust anybody because that's the that's the uh, the line that everyone takes. Oh yeah, well that's not very that's not very appropriate for wrestling for him to suggest it. Everyone should be held in it. Um, here's a history lesson. Bobby Heenan has been anti Hulk Hogan throughout the whole thing. He's been completely consistent in that. And if you think about it, if you just think about it one second, Hulk Hogan coming out, yeah, for a very long time. Yeah, great. Everyone's cheering. He's got the pop. He's got the babe face announcers on his side. That's great. But if you actually stop and think about it, in the situation we're in, he's showing up at this critical moment, unannounced, in a match in which two guys from the WWF, quote unquote, wink, wink, uh, have a third man that they're keeping secret to the very last moment. That is an oh, that is good. There's a meme, a trope. It's called an oh shit moment. When he walks out, immediately you would think, hang on, what is this all about? And Bobby the Brain Heenan, who has never liked him, has always thought he was a no good, dirty. He's about to be proven right. And and if well, he, he does say, what have I? What was it? He says, what what have I said all along? He was what like, he was giving out the I told you so straight after, and he had yeah, what right have they been to. saying all these years? Because let's face it, if you watch one of these TV shows where so, someone's got to rob a store or something. And two people doing it, and one of them will say, right, listen, I know you don't normally rob stores, but just be cool, and we'll get through this fine. So the guy who's been told to be cool turns around and goes, hello there, citizen, I am here to do some shopping, and nothing untoward whatsoever. You're going to immediately press a button, because he's being weird. And although Bobby the Brain Heenan wants those, those you know, he's cheering on for them, if he started going, yeah, rah, 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 Hulk's here, he'll do it. Uh, what the fuck? What the hell is going on? Because one of my biggest pet peeves in, in the production, the presentation of wrestling is that there's a lot to it. But I think the shortest way of saying it is it's known as the swerve. Normally, when you get these, these hackney cliche heel turns, you have to act like you're going to do something heroic. And then suddenly, wham, you get the wham moment. I said about the old shit moment, the wham moment which is where it just happens there. And to build that up, you've got to fake like you're going to do so. So how many guys, how many babyfaces have we seen uncharacteristically run down in a match? Babyfaces don't normally do run-ins. They don't do attacks. And they're wielding a chair. Why the fuck are you doing that? It's because they're going to fake hitting the enemy and then they're going to hit their friend. I've seen Chavo do it to Rey Mysterio when King Booker won the world title. I've seen um, Matt Hardy turn on Jeff Hardy where you could see it a mole coming. Mm. 
and everyone in in the wrestling parlance in the way we've actually built ourselves up the way wrestling works that's the right way and bobby heenan's is the wrong way and that's the thing that blows my mind because we've been doing football things all day thanks rob and i'm glad you have been doing that rob because one of the things about football is that when you know man city versus watford in the recent fa cup final they go across to the panel and they say predict the winner what are those panelists going to say they're going is one of them going to say watford no now if anyone did that in wrestling that would be a cardinal sin because you're only allowed to predict the losers are going to win that makes no fucking sense none of none of the the foundations of why we don't like Bobby Heen and say that make any sense. And as I've already said, this is a pure naturalistic, realistic thing that takes you in the moment. And Bobby Heen and blurting that out and keeping to his character and staying consistent keeps you in the moment of what's happening. And if anything, Shirvani and Dusty getting a bit too raw, as you said, Dean, they say don't trust anyone. And you're like, oh yeah, Hulk Hogan's here. Do you know what I'd have done? Is a little side thing. I would have had. After he says that, oh, but whose side he's on? And, and, and at first they're like, what? But then I'd actually have them start to think, oh, actually, what is he doing out with? I would really build the oh shit moment. I'd have everyone, so, because you don't say it, I'd have them start to go, oh, hang, hang on, what the, what the is he, the, the, he's not going to, he's a, oh, 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 fuck. There'd be nothing wrong with that. That's not ruining it. That'd be amazing. That is a because, device people yeah. use. But you see, to me, when... When Heenan says whose side is he on, it puts that moment of doubt into your head where what you want is that absolutely nobody thinks that he could possibly do something like that and it takes everyone by by complete so, surprise. To me, that's an impossible but, request because, as I said, he could, when he Hulk Hogan comes out unannounced, he could, yeah. when Tony Schiavone does that, don't trust anyone, and then, there's already there's already red flags. You know, so by that logic, even that doesn't work. For me, Heenan was Heenan. And obviously, no one's ever going to convince me otherwise, but I'm happy to really go full-blown into why I believe that. And yeah, the, the one situation where the whole thing of, yeah, he shouldn't have said that works, is, as I said, it's a situation, a premise that wrestling has built up that you can't suggest that what's going to happen could happen, even if, yeah. it's, the, even if it's the bleeding obvious. And that's the problem, not Bobby Heenan. I, I just think he could have said something like, oh, no, or what, not him or something. Rob, we've, we've <laughs> left you out of this. For no pressure, your, Rob, but you're the casting no, vote. You're the casting, <laughs> what are your thoughts on this one? Uh, what are you asking? You're asking which side am I on? Is that what this is all but come down to? But whose side is third man Rob McNichol? Anyone's ever done. Oh, it comes down to this, boys. You know, you've been doing all these podcasts for all of these years and you've talked about it for several hours and it comes down to what I think. And at the end of the day, I think, ah, whatever. No, I'm only joking. I'm only joking. But I thought you were going to say I, I, we can stick it, brother. I don't <laughs> think it's as big a deal. I'll, I will do it. I'll be the third man. I'll take a third way. I don't think it's as big a deal as people have made out in the past. If you if you ask me to pick one of your sides, if Dean thinks it's a bad idea and if Liam thinks it's a good idea, I have to pick one. I'm I'm more with Liam than I am with Dean. I, I'm I'm more. I'm okay with it. I think had any of the other commentators said, but whose side is he on? I would have been down on them. If Dusty had said it, if Tony had said it, yeah. if Mike Tanay was standing in and had said it, it's if all about Bischoff was there and had said it, I would have had a problem with all of the baby faces saying it. Mm. But Hogan does, but 
Heenan doesn't like Hogan. And you're also not supposed to trust anything Heenan says because Heenan talks complete bollocks. Yeah. And he lies <laughs> about things. No, he does. His character is that he's a liar. You know, he'll tell you yeah. that he's had great matches and he's done this and he, he's done that. So as a viewer, as a listener in this case, you are trained not to necessarily believe what Bobby Heenan says. He's part I of the scenery on this one. He is part of the scenery. And what Dean says is right about, you know, the conventions, but both of you said is right about the conventions of things. One of the big problems is, is, and it's, I think it's, perhaps this is a, something to write for the website one day. Perhaps it's a, it's a how to be great podcast of, of the top five things that most annoy you. I don't know, but that's probably the I one think, that gets me on the show. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can run. <laughs> bring you on for that one. Um, I think we, uh, I think if I had to write some of the things that most annoy, the things I would change, if you may be the, the, the Sultan and overlord of the whole of wrestling, what things I would change. One of the things I would change is in a really, really close title match, when there's a, a, a believable near fall, the commentator goes, he's got him. We've got a new champion. One, two. Oh, he kicked out. It's like, well, yeah, I knew he was going to kick out because you said he's going to use a new champion. Because mm-hmm. we all know that every time a commentator goes, there's going to be a new champion, that there isn't going to be a new champion. We've been educated so completely the opposite. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it is like you just said about the panels. And it's like, what they very clear, interestingly, they don't do it. See, if, if, uh, if Manchester City had named 10 of their 11 players in that team that you were talking about, and there was discussion about who was going to be the 11th man, the commentators would be talking about whether or not it was going to be Aguero or Sterling or Foden or De Bruyne or Fernandinho or Rodney fucking Marsh. They'd be talking about who it was going to be, right? Um, They can't do that in wrestling, can they? Because they can't... Mean Gene can't go... Well, I heard him through the door. I think it might be Bret Hart. I think it might be the Ultimate Warrior. I think it might be Steve Lombardi. He can't say someone that works for another company. And he also can't say, I think it could be, um, you know, name another person in WCW. He can't do any of that because we all know as soon as he says it, it's not going to be that person. So it's the way it's been built over the, over the time. And you need to actually chip away at that for years and years and years and years. There's a whole other tangent you could go on about finishers as well you're right about the, the, the something like the diamond cutter being over as a finisher but i wish there was fewer finishes fewer ones that were mega over but fewer generally because there's so many people that it, it just plays into the wrong part of a match and it, and it just it, it doesn't it doesn't help your enjoyment of the match it's not realistic you know that, that one particular move would be stronger than all the others unless it's a few that certain people have of um of mastered in this case it would take too long to try and rectify all the all of these you know long-term faults but on this particular occasion if hulk hogan had showed up at the building after the first match carrying a little walk along luggage trolley and walked into his own dressing room and they'd have speculated hulk hogan's in the building if at that point heenan goes but which side is he on i would have gone that's a terrible move because you've got two and a half hours to speculate and people are going to go, oh, well, third man, of course it's him. And as would have been surprise. showing him from the start as well. Sure, Everything about this worked because of the uncertainty and the fact that he, he made his appearance like 30 seconds before he dropped that hammer. Yeah, Everything yes, exactly was uncertain. Everything exactly was natural. That. I'd love to So time, good. I would love to time the exact amount of seconds between Heenan finishing his sentence of whose side is he on and Hogan dropping the leg. I doubt it's more than 15 seconds. Mm. And it feels and like it's a just forever. just not and it's long brilliant. enough. 
to it to have been too detrimental. Certainly the crowd in the building don't know what, Ho, uh, what Heenan has said. And I just don't think you've got enough time to process it. We've all had 24 years to think about this. In the moment, you're watching it going, well, what's happening? Why is Hogan here? You haven't got time in your own head to process everything before he's dropped the leg. So Heenan's line is, is kind of negligible. The, the only other thing I'll throw in that we've not really talked about yet, and I've never really heard talked about, is that you know I've worked a little bit with Jim Ross, and I've heard him on his podcast talk about matches. And JR is absolutely adamant that, generally speaking, he didn't know the finish to a match. If it affected how he had to call things in the build-up, sometimes he knew the result, but not necessarily how it was going to be. But generally speaking, JR was happy to sit back and call what he saw. I would love to know, did Bobby Heenan know what was going to happen? Did he know Hogan was going to appear? Did he know Hogan was going to turn? Did he know anyone was going to turn? Did he know the result? That changes a lot. That changes. Did he just call what he saw on the fly because it's what Bobby the Brain Heenan would have said? Or did he know two days before that pay-per-view that Hogan was going to walk out two minutes and 51 51 minutes into it? Yeah, I I hope he didn't know. I really do hope because, as I've said, the, the big thing for me, I love the naturalism of it. And that would have lent into that, and that would make me an even bigger fan. Just the whole, the the naturalism, it made such a degree of uncertainty. And that is a sort of thing. As I said, I think I said this to Dean. I might say it to both of you. I'm not sure. But I did say to someone before we actually went on the air that, you know, when I did rewatch it, and I weren't going to rewatch this because I knew I could cover this show. I've seen it so many times. I didn't need a watch this week. But I did it anyway, and I'm so glad it is because I did. Because even then... This main event got me. It had me feeling the feels. Mm. Not many matches yeah. can do that. At, like at turn number, I don't know, it might have been like 50 or 60 or 69. Nice. Nice. <laughs> I've, I've got to say, as as a commentator, I I am with yeah I'm I'm with uh, with Jim Ross that I I will know who's going over, um, and. That's that's it because and and then yeah how the match finishes I don't I don't know unless it's something specific to do with an angle or a storyline or the wrestlers themselves come up to me and say can you push this can you push that um, because for the for that very reason that you get a natural a, a natural reaction and I think knowing knowing who is going to win helps me position my commentary in a certain direction because um you know if if someone is dominating a match and then is losing at the end you will commentate on that very differently to if someone is dominating a match and winning at the end because you've got to position them and position the opponent in different ways but i i can't honestly think that Bobby Heenan wouldn't have known that Hogan was turning heel. I'm sure they all would have known. In the those those in the broadcast position would have known what was happening. But I guess that's a question. Well, Tony Schiavone would be the only surviving member of that team that could answer it. But um, but there you go. Right. We have goodness me. We have we have talked. We have talked and talked. Well, um, we have debated and discussed and broken down. I think one of the one of the all time great wrestling pay-per-views ever wouldn't you say we gave this the time and the, and the justice it deserved if we've ever going to break the three hour mark on one podcast and don't worry guys we don't plan on making a habit of it but this is the one to do it there i mean we could have done a regular episode length just about that main event 
Yes, yes, we could have, definitely. Um, Rob, just before you go, um, where can people get hold of you and the Hooked on Wrestling stuff on social media? Yeah, I'd, I'd encourage anyone to um, to follow the Hooked on stuff. I don't say a lot or do a lot on social media anymore, but uh, yeah, Hooked on Wrestling um, through Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. It is just forward slash Hooked on Wrestling. Uh, and on Twitter, uh, HO underscore wrestling um, for Hooked on. Um, as we said at the very top of the show, if you listen to this before SummerSlam, please come and join us on SummerSlam as in the build-up to the show. Uh, after that, um, Nitro Week is uh, is coming up into the first week of September. Should be a great deal of fun. Um, but just mainly to um, to just back up the fact that there's so much going on on the site. Um, there is some general news stuff. If it's just something you want to click on every morning and just go through four or five stories that have happened overnight, that's there for you. There's some great fun uh, opinions on current wrestling, looks at old shows, um, little flights of fancy like you know Liam's long-term story about rebooking WCW, um, and we've got a whole bunch of um, podcasts, not just mine um, and not just this, but there's other podcasts that are going on, um, as well as um, you know the, the Sunday quiz, which on you know even when it's not the the pay-per-view like this week for um, SummerSlam, we do a Sunday quiz via YouTube and Facebook at eight o'clock each week. Just a great deal of fun to be part of. It's something a bit different. Um, that's what we always went for to begin with. Liam will know this. From the very start of the the concept of this website, there was no point in being just another um, gossipy site with clickbait. There was no just no point trying to be uh, all clever and insidey and and like a like a dirt sheet. We wanted to make our own um, sort of fun look at uh, an industry that we all mm. take a lot of time thinking about, have watched over the past, and care deeply about. But uh, our tagline is always "It's wrestling, enjoy it." Um, so we can have some. You know, in-depth looks at what we would change, but the, the main point is that uh, we try and put a smile on our own faces by enjoying something that we uh, that we all love. And I think this show is a great example of that. You know, WCW, you, you can't look at WCW and be too serious, otherwise you go mad. Um, but the very name, the very <laughs> name exhibit of your A and podcast, B, host the, this the very podcast. name of your podcast is so perfect. You know, the fact that you can just come every now and again and go, well because WCW and that's you know it was a, a pleasure to be on with you boys because it's um it's something to this 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 podcast uh, this pay-per-view happens to be one where you can get into real depth into to say oh, what man. was great yes. and what was terrible yeah. and, and next was, uh, next time we'll come to you directly if we're going to have you back on Rob we won't go via Paul and let him take his uh 65% cut like he did this time <laughs> yeah i as uh, as far as his agency goes he can't fire me I quit. <laughs> He's the Don King of Hooked on Wrestling. Uh, but, but it's with, the donkey uh, and a Don King. But with, <laughs> drop, with, with, with drop the dead Don less, King. That's yeah, but with slightly less weird hair. Um, so, yeah, as, um, as you've said, Hooked on Wrestling uh, are doing a Nitro week. Obviously, we are going to be a big part of that. Why is that? Um, some, <laughs> because WCW. Um, <laughs> I see what you did so, there. Uh, yeah. So um yeah we we uh we're still lining up some uh, some guests old and new. Um we're also planning on doing something very special to mark the uh 25th anniversary of the first first episode of Nitro uh, which was uh, September the 4th. Uh plus of course we're coming up to our third birthday next month as well. So um we'll uh, we'll have to do something to uh, celebrate that I'm Not sure. Not like that. 
not like that. But uh, in the meantime, thank you so much for downloading this podcast. Thank you for making it this far. Um, you can get hold of us on Twitter at BecauseWCW, Facebook.com forward slash BecauseWCW as well. Please, if you like this podcast, subscribe it, subscribe to it, rate it and review it and keep spreading the word. So until next time, this is me, the Twisted Genius, on behalf of Rob, on behalf of Liam, saying thank you very much for listening to this podcast and we will see you ringside.